Greetings and salutations, podcast listeners. This is your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons, and you have found your way to an episode of Rank and Review. And let's not make a big deal about it, but it's a clip show. But it's an epic clip show, like I tend to do. I only do one of these a season, or I only let myself do one of them a season. And, uh, you know, even though you might have heard some of these before, I want to give you your free money's worth. So, we're going to listen to 12 Stephen King reviews today. That's almost four hours of Rankin Review talking about Stephen King. I do have specific episodes that I have done on Stephen King. None of those reviews are going to be included here, but this is a collection of 12 isolated reviews from different episodes. If you go to the website, rankinreview.ca, and search in the episodes column, if you write in Stephen King, you'll get several episodes full of him. And none of those reviews will you hear here. So, uh, it's not all of them. The Dark Tower hateful review is not included here. I figure I'll give that a little bit time to heal and or fester. Um, I didn't include Cat's Eye or Sometimes They Come Back. But who knows, maybe they'll show up in another King Clip show down the road if we do another one or whatnot. But I tried to give a good spectrum of the movies that we've reviewed and some of the good, some of the bad, and some of the in-between. Before we get started, you should go into these reviews understanding that there will be spoilers for the films and some of the books for the stories that the films are based on because we get into it. So, heads up for that, and there's probably going to be some coarse language, most especially from your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons, because he is a potty mouth. But as far as the layout of the episode itself, we're going to start with Creepshow, and my guest host there will be Jeremy Cook. Then we'll do Silver Bullet with series regular Mr. Lee Beckman, who will show up quite a bit this episode. The Dead Zone with my wife, Lauren Baker. Rose Red, reviewed by Matthew Risling, The Night Flyer with Damian Bartlett, It Chapter 1, Matt Risling again, It Chapter 2, Lee Beckman again, Sleepwalkers from Daniel Epler and Maximum Overdrive from Kurt Fitzpatrick, uh, one of my Carrie reviews, the better of the two, I think, with uh, Mireille Smith, uh, Shining Review again with Lee Beckman, and we'll finish with the sequel to The Shining, Dr. Sleep once again with Lee Beckman. So, yes, it's a monster clip show, but like I said, I think you're getting your free podcasts worth here. And yes, we'll be back every other Wednesday. We're still keeping things going in the crazy world of COVID and all the madness that's going on. I'm trying to keep this thing up and running. So indulge me this clip show. Share my love with Stephen King. Celebrate that he's publishing, what is it, it's like 70-something book this September called Fairy Tale. Um, King is an incredibly respected figure, and there's a really good reason for it. You can send your feedback to rankingreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-B-I-E-W at gmail.com. The website is rankingreview.ca. I am, as always, your host and random Canadian, Mary Parsons. And thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Please tell a friend about the show. Now let's talk four hours worth of Stephen King.
Gods of Horror. Creepshow. From the author of Carrie, The Shining, and Cujo. And the creator of Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. You'll scream at ghastly ghouls. Cringe at weird kids. And shiver at the doings of evil doctors. This is going to be extremely painful, Mr. I like uh, Stephen King and... uh... I like some of George A. Romero's work quite a bit. Specifically, if there's zombies involved, I, I'm I'm interested in Romero. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is an interesting uh, anthology, sort of a tribute to the old uh, EC comics from back of the day. Before the Comics Code Authority ruined them. Yes. Exactly, took all the teeth out of them. Um, so the stories that you're going to encounter here are very, very simple. You know, uh, and there's you know people wearing white hats and people wearing black hats. And in a way, that really feeds to uh, Stephen King's talents because I do find that he does sort of paint in black and white especially with his characters. They're either super good or they're super evil. (laughs) And uh, when you're painting in these cartoonish comic book broad strokes uh, it it works. I've said like I I like Stephen King but having him as your, your screenplay author is not usually necessarily a good thing. And I think it works well enough in, in, in Creep Show here. As far as I know, these are all original Stephen King stories, aren't they? Like they, he didn't actually go back to any of the old. AC I believe comics. most of these are either adapted from some of his short stories or, yeah, just written in the style of those EC comics. I've read a lot of his short fiction, and I don't remember running into most of these stories. Uh, you know, in other, any other format. When you move on to Creepshow 2, they're direct adaptations of his short fictions. I think this is his sort of version of an EC comic for film. Now, there's some great ideas in this movie, and one of them, I feel, is the lighting effects, particularly mm-hmm. during the dramatic scenes, are great, the way that they'll do these... Color stains. Yeah, yeah. color stains and splashes when somebody sees something horrifying yeah. that, that mimic the old comics. But what I am wondering about, and maybe you can answer this for me, why do you think Romero thought it was important to have all the performances be hammy? You know, is there something about the EC comics that that suggested cheesy um, dialogue? Well, uh, like I said, the, the stories are very simplistic, and uh, you know, it's basically set up to the payoff of the kill or the scare or the boo. I think that he wanted to make this a funny, scary movie, and I think in the end, it's much more scary than funny. And the funny wasn't in the script as much as it was in the presentation. Well, in any case, I think that a lot of the scary gets detracted from in the performances. Right. Uh, lots of scenes could have been way more frightening if we cared about the characters, for right. instance. And giving legitimate performances is one of that, but one of those things. So, let's duck in, shall we? Yes. Our first story is Father's Day. Yes. Not too much to say about this. A shambling zombie comes to life and kills a bunch of people. Yes. The end. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, there's a, a, 
uh, early performance from Ed Harris. Uh, we get to see him doing some funky disco dancing. And, uh, you know, the I want my cake, my Father's Day cake was a, uh, a line that was repeated a lot around my house when I was a kid. <laughs> More on that later. Yes. Um, so the next one is The Lonesome, the Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill. Yes. And this one actually stars Stephen King. As a complete yokel, <laughs> like, um, God don't make no trash, piece of what trash, you know? <laughs> a meteor falls on his farm, and he immediately tries to think of ways that he can... Profit from this. <laughs> yes, but uh, unfortunately, some of the meteor shit falls out and starts <laughs> growing weird plant life all over his farm. Now, Stephen King has admitted at this time, that, uh, subsequently, that he's quite embarrassed by his performance in Creepshow, but that his direction, as told by his dear friend Romero, was that he couldn't play it too big, that this would be fun and funny, and that uh, he was right for the part. And Stephen King had a head full of alcohol and cocaine, and uh, I, I, I think that it's the most clearly funny of all of the stories as far as, like, it's deliberately goofy and funny. Um, and the visions that we are treated to, sort of uh, the Jody Verrill vision that we get. <laughs> I love how whenever he imagines some an authority figure or someone that's smarter than him, he imagines his dad. His dad dressed as these different people, yeah. And the Either a cop or a doctor. Or... The Department of Meteors at the university is pretty great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and just, you know, his, his strategies of dealing with this, you know, his green mossy plants are growing everywhere that he has touched or that the meteor has touched and his solution is to drink a bottle of vodka and watch wrestling and hope that the problem goes away you know mm -hmm. and then later he he tries to wash it off with water great, yes great plan there yeah and even the vision of his dad waving a finger saying, you know this is a stupid idea, will not stop him from pressing forward. Um, you know, a lot of people would just, like, have a hard time wading through this move, this this uh, story, I imagine. But I kind of get a kick out of it. I mean, I do too. Stephen King is over the top, and I don't think he's an actor necessarily, but uh, I think he works well enough for the segment that they were doing here. And... Uh, it still somehow feels of the world of the rest of the movie. Like I say, I think this is the most overtly funny of the stories, but uh, it's definitely it definitely belongs. Yeah, my only criticism would would of course be Stephen King's performance. I think it did just go a little bit too far over the edge for me. But also, the main problem would be that there's no plot to it. No. The, the plot goes something bad happened, then it got even worse. Yeah, end of story. So. It keeps with the theme of, like, grand simplicity. Yes. Yeah. It's got some nice laughs, though, and so I can't fault it completely. Good times. Next, we have Something to Tide You Over. Yes. Uh, Sam Malone, Ted Danson. Uh, Pre-cheers, uh, Ted Danson. And uh, a pre-naked gun, <laughs> Leslie Nielsen. <laughs> Where we were still allowed to take him a little bit seriously. Um, this is sort of a standard uh, revenge type of story, uh, revenge from beyond the grave. Uh, a wealthy sociopath finds out that his wife has been cheating on him, and since he's very, uh, as to his own admission, very insane when it comes to things that belong to him, 
uh, he feels it necessary to dispatch both his wife and her lover. But he does it in a very, very cruel, torturous uh, way uh, by leading them out to the uh, beach, his private beach, burying them neck deep, deep in the sand, hooking up a video so that they could see their lover in a similar situation further down the beach, being drowned as the tide comes in. And, and watching the whole thing watching the his whole thing compound in his compound like a very very evil Stephen King villain that we have here and uh, yeah in true nature of the uh, creep show simplicity the ghosts or zombies return from their watery grave to get their revenge let's call them revenant that's <laughs> okay. a much cooler Revenants? turn they're yeah. very good uh, this one was interesting because of Leslie Nielsen, I yes. thought. He, this was a, the first, you know, dramatic role I've ever seen him in, and, uh, it was, I just thought it was refreshing. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, he does play it very seriously, and his character is fucked. Like, he is a crazy, crazy dude. And I liked it, it was sort of refreshing to me that he knew it. <laughs> he knew it. He knew that this was completely crazy and that there were certain things that he was not right about, but he'd somehow made his peace with it, <laughs> that this was who he was. <laughs> yes. And the fact that I think he gives the most dialed-back performance mm -hmm. in the movie is also important as well in there establishing is, him as a villain. There is an interesting bit of continuity here, and I don't know if we want to just blame uh, Leslie Nielsen or Romero, but uh, in the climactic sequences, when he starts hearing noises in his house, uh, he's in the shower. And uh, at no point is his hair even a little bit wet at any, any point in the shower. I also really love the scene when he finally does see the creatures and they do the zoom in with the light. And where any other person, I think, would be screaming... He's laughing hysterically. Yeah, yeah. I great. love that shot so much. <laughs> like, <laughs> how do you react when you actually turn that corner and see those vengeful ghosts coming to get you? Like, you're screwed. There's absolutely nothing he could have done to save himself, I believe. <laughs> like, Maniacal laughter. And, uh, yeah. He empties his bullets into them, he tries to lock himself in another room, he turns around and somehow they've just appeared before him, and he starts to laugh, and I just loved it. <laughs> Good stuff. Our next story is very special to you, as oh, I dear remember, Larry. <laughs> yes. Tell us about what your dad used to do to you. Uh, this is another one of the many 80s horror movies that I saw way too young. And of all the horrible stories and, uh, you know, awful violence that is in this Creepshow movie, it was this story, The Crate, that terrified me. And it concerns the, a janitor finding a mysterious crate under the stairs at the, this university. And him, unfortunately, inviting his professor friend to help him open it to see what's inside. We, in my garage in Beaumont, Alberta, where I grew up, had a crate that did not look at all dissimilar to this crate in the movie. And my father, knowing I was terrified of this, loved to send me out to the garage to get something. He would probably, even if he didn't need it, you know, he'd go, go get me a length of those old Christmas lights, you know, they're... They're in the garage, right by the crate, he would say. <laughs> Son of a bitch. 
Tom Savini, it should be mentioned, uh, is responsible for the makeup and special effects in Creepshow. And uh, for the most part, uh, it's very over the top in the style of EC Comics. So the violence is, you know, it, it's it's nasty and, and, and somewhat realistically rendered, but uh, the context is so ridiculous as to sort of detract from the horror a little bit. Not so in this crate installment. Uh, there's a scene where a student gets mauled by this creature in the crate, which is just embedded in my subconscious because I saw it too young. Uh, the the effects stand up today. A lot of stuff about this movie doesn't. A lot of the fashions, the, the synthy scores, like the color scheme, very 80s. But... The special effects that Tom Savini did with those creature kills in this movie still look horrible and awesome at the same time. The monster in the crate still looks scary, too, yeah. with those yellow eyes peering out. And uh, there are some great scenes of suspense where someone is inching towards the crate and uh -huh. you know that it's in there. <laughs> yeah. they, they they want to go there for some reason. You're like, turn back. This is the, not a good idea. Or what the heck are you doing? Yeah. Just so uh, Hal Holbrook uh, plays this uh, really put-upon fellow whose wife, played by Adrian Barbeau, just is this raging alcoholic bitch. <laughs> uh, I mean... He lives this miserable marriage, and I'm sure he has a part to play in why he's so unhappy, but uh, he believes that his wife, Billy, would be better served underground, and that his life would be better. And when uh, his best friend comes hysterical to his door, explaining that there's a monster that he opened a crate, freed from a crate, that has killed the janitor, he does not immediately panic. Instead, he sees this as an opportunity to deal with his wife. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, in, in a way, that makes the crate the most complex story of the entire movie, in that they added the additional wrinkle of him, you know, murdering his wife via this crate monster. Um, it's also the only story that's not wrapped up neatly. Uh, in the end, I think, you know, uh, the, they show this... He thinks that he's gotten rid of the crate by throwing it down into a... Another rock quarry. Another rock quarry. Here we go. Um, but we see, you know, that it has escaped. And at the, at the end of that story, the crate monster was out there and free. And uh, young, single-digit age category Larry was not okay with that and still isn't. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> I love, I love, I love that segment. I mean, um, I, I do enjoy Creepshow overall, and we'll watch it front to back, but uh, it's one of those things where I'm having a conversation with somebody, and, oh, you haven't seen that? I will put in the disc and show them the crate monster, because it's nuts. It's nuts. It's also noticeably the longest story, too, I think, of, of, of the collection. Um, but, I myself but the was uh, introduced to... Creep show via the crate by you yeah. fairly early in our relationship as friends. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> yes, thank you. So we have a last story here called They're Creeping Up on You. Basically, uh, there's a creepy millionaire uh, sealed in a room who's afraid of germs and bugs. and then He's, he's also racist. He, he's, yeah. Yes, we need because we needed that. And We have to not like this guy. <laughs> yeah, and then... 
he is sees more and more bugs, and then there's a bug explosion. The end. <laughs> That's basically the plot. Yeah, I mean, one of the most interesting things, maybe the most interesting thing about that this segment is how disgusting it apparently was to be on set for this. Uh, they used real cockroaches. This this is no CG anywhere in in in, in this movie, um, and apparently it stank. Like, it was just, like, a repellent environment to be for days and days and days and days. And, days. and uh, apparently they'd rented all these different camera equipment and uh, cranes or whatnot to make the production. <laughs> and uh, maybe somebody was doing a cockroach count. Maybe they weren't. But in the documentary I saw on Romero, there was people in the production saying that they were pretty sure some equipment was getting returned infested with these cockroaches. (laughs) Well, I was reading on Wikipedia, actually, someone was doing a count because the cockroaches came from a foreign country. Yeah, they had to fly them in. Yes, and so they had to keep track of them for some reason. So between every scene, they had to count the number of cockroaches so that they could be returned. Yeah. Uh, it's probably the, one of the grossest things in the movie when all the bugs abur- emerge from the body of this old curmudgeon. But uh, at that point, having already seen the crate, uh, if uh, I was numb <laughs> by this point, yeah. it might have actually been a story too many. I think it would have been better if the crate was at the end, honestly, because it's the high strong. point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the one thing about this is that it really goes to highlight the shitty 80s synthesizer because for the first time we hear real music in the form of the old-timey tunes that the old man is playing, and they really serve to just put what what we've been hearing to shame at this point. And you're, oh, wow, I've been listening to shit this whole time. Yeah. So... Yeah. It doesn't necessarily fit, like, I can deal with an 80s synthy soundtrack because what choice do you have? But it's one of those things that doesn't necessarily seem to fit with the old-timey EC comic book thing either. In a way, I think you wanted, like, an orchestral score. Maybe they just couldn't afford it. Well, that's probably the case. In, in any case, you, you really get the idea that, that it's been dated by the music, which is a shame. Because many, many 80s movies have been ruined as uh, <laughs> like that for me. I wouldn't say that it's ruined. I think that, like, if you can put up with some 80s-ness to your movies, you're not going to waste your time watching Creepshow. Fair enough. I like it. Uh, and uh, the stories, for the most part, are fairly quick and uncomplicated, you know. Uh, again, uh it's worth a look. It's definitely worth a look. For me, there were, there were enough stories in here that didn't have a real three-act plot to them that, that it was they, they disappointed me plus the hammy acting i was not behind a hundred percent because i couldn't felt figure. deliberate though i didn't feel like they were weak performances i felt like they were doing what was asked for them. sure it was deliberate yeah. but i don't know why yeah i do not know why they thought it was necessary to do that but still some great ideas and some great stories and if for nothing else man check out the creep the, the crate pardon me uh, also interesting to note, uh, the movie has book ended with a little kid reading a, a comic book. Well, I guess having his comic books destroyed by his mean old dad. And that boy is, uh, played by Joe Hill, uh, or Joe King at the time, Stephen King's son, who's grown up to be a, a horror author in his own right. So, kind of an interesting, interesting little, uh, time capsule piece. And every month after that, Whenever the moon was full, 
it happened again. And again. What was that? It's over there. Who that at me? Nobody knew who or what was responsible. Come on. They only knew it had to be stopped. Now, from the master of mystery and suspense, Stephen King's Silver Bullet. So coming up in ranking review, hopefully, in the next few episodes or so, I'm going to do an entire entire episode dedicated to Stephen King. Mm. Um, and uh, this last movie we're reviewing is called Silver Bullet, which is based on a novella called Cycle of the Werewolf by, by Mr. King. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's an interesting movie. Uh, <laughs> it, it's very faithful to Stephen King's work, which stands yeah. to reason because it was adapted for the screen by Stephen, Stephen King. King. Yep. The thing is, as much as I am a fan of Stephen King... And I do like a lot of his books, and I think yeah. he's got a rich imagination, which I like to go visit again and again. Yep. Having Stephen King as your screenplay writer is not always a good thing. No, it's In not. fact, I would say it is often a bad thing. Um, in this case, however, I think it works. Um, it does, and it doesn't. And even Silver, Silver Bullet sort of has both, both what works with a Stephen King movie and what doesn't work with a Stephen King movie. One thing that I think you'll agree on is Stephen King, a lot of times, his characters, they are really cookie-cutter... Black and white. Black and white. They're super good or super bad yeah. and very little in between. Yeah. And you never really get that emotionally invested with a lot of his stories because of it. Uh, and Silver Bullet it, it, you know, is a prime example of that. Once again, it's a traditional monster movie, which I love. Um, I guess the only character that has any sort of dimension to it is the Gary Busey character, Uncle Red. Hmm. Um, and, I mean, because he's a drunkard, he's, uh, you know, he's got a little bit of badness to him, but he's also a sweet guy who eventually does believe his niece and nephew. He's the only character that really has any kind of depth to him, and he's the one that I enjoy the most out of Silver Bullet. I think he's definitely the, the biggest performance and the, the brightest yeah. light as yeah. far as the acting in, yeah. and the characterizations in the film. Yeah. But I think I would probably disagree with you that, that he was the only bright light as far as the, the cast. Um, I'm, going, I'm having a terrible time. Megan with Follows? Megan Follows plays the older sister, and Corey Haim is the little boy in the wheelchair. Yeah. Uh, who, he's a decent actor as a little kid, uh, but is not very convincing when he is moving out of his wheelchair into other places yeah. and that he doesn't have the use of his legs. Yeah. Um, but this is a kid who's very vulnerable, who's very, you know, uh, his sister's very put upon because she always has to look after her little brother. Yeah. And uh, they have kind of a almost parent-teacher relationship, or a student-teacher relationship with their parents, and he has almost a father-son relationship with his uncle. Yeah. But uh, Terry O'Quinn also shows up in this movie. A lot yeah. of people know him as Locke yes. from Lost. He's also the stepfather. The stepfather. In the first couple of stepfather movies, yeah. if that is your <laughs> poison of choice. Yeah. Um, 
um, I, I liked him uh, in the movie. I, I, maybe I wouldn't have liked him as much if I wasn't such a fan of the actor, but yeah. he was one of the few characters who seemed to be doing things right. Yeah. <laughs> in the, um, people just, you know, the Stephen King small town folk, like you say, yeah. either utterly refuse to believe anything that our heroes say, yeah. or take him completely at his word. Yeah. Either extreme is kind of a hard pill to swallow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, the characters at the bar uh yeah, there's a, a famous the, sequence the red shirts of the film yeah, if you will where a bunch of the rednecks decide to go out and take care of this wolf problem yeah <laughs> and uh lawrence tierney uh who lo- most people know from reservoir dogs yes uh is sort of this gruff bartender who has this uh the baseball peace, bat the peacemaker <laughs> and uh in a, a, a funny and yet strange and yet a sequence that works yeah. the werewolf actually uses the bat on somebody yeah see i mean that scene i just i can't stop laughing when i watch that scene i mean it but it's entertaining off. it's wall to wall it is but you've got once again you know a man in a rubber suit with a hand grabbing a baseball hat going Whoops. yeah i think that's for me the weak point of the movie actually yeah. is some of the werewolf effects are not at all convincing. Yeah. There's a sequence where our hero, the little boy in the wheelchair, shoots a firecracker at the wolf early in the screen, in the film, yeah. and it gets hit in the eye. And this is a big hint to us, so if we see anybody with a bandage on their eye, yeah. we, we gotta keep an eye out for this. Yeah. Uh, not for a frame of that sequence does that wolf look even remotely convincing. Yeah, I know. And I think it's actually a good compliment to the rest of the movie and the stuff around it that we kept going with the movie uh, uh, because that was one of the first times we got a good look at the creature and it was not good <laughs> no I mean I, once again like that's it suffers for a man in a rubber outfit what's it, it, Carlo Rimbaldi is the guy who did these special effects he was also he's credited as doing you know E.T. oh yeah um the special effects in Silver Bullet, they, they really are night and day because that attack with the girl who tries to kill herself with the pills mm-hmm. that attack is done quite well and it's very brutal. The guy that gets decapitated at the train station at the yeah. beginning of the movie. Well yeah. done. Yeah, yeah, no. Like, so I'm thinking, okay, yeah, yeah. But when we do see that werewolf, especially that firecracker sequence, mm-hmm. and there's another point where it's clearly a man in, a, in an outfit, it, it, it takes you out of it. Yeah. It really does. Um, the humor in Silver Bullet takes me out of this movie. Yeah. Um, it's hard and that's one thing I, I was sort of thinking about with with, with werewolf movies. It, it is hard to do a good werewolf movie. It can you have be done. to commit to taking it seriously? You do. You really do. And uh, you know, once you start winking, then it's easy to keep on winking. Then it's yeah. easy to get to a little more broad comedy. Mm-hmm. I don't think it ever tips over into comedy. No, but uh, I I think that there's enough just weird choices that it kind of takes a little bit away from the horror. Which is strange because American Werewolf in London is also very much a comedy that that it is a horror film. Mm-hmm. It's it somehow and it's and it, like it is all over the map. You've got mm-hmm. weird dream sequences. You've got some some humor that you know, you're laughing. And it's also a scary film. I know it didn't quite scare you, but it is. It's interesting too. Now that I think about all these films, all a lot of them have dream sequences in them as well. Yeah, um, that's an interesting sort of tool that they use in this werewolf milieu. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I usually have issues with horror movies where little kids are the main characters. I just have a hard time getting scared for Megan Follows and, and, yeah. and Corey Feldman. I just uh, nothing in me believes that any harm will come to either of them. Yeah. So then the question is. 
will their uncle die? It was basically the only question. Yeah. But Stephen King has no problem icing kids. Right? Yeah. In fact, a kid gets killed in it the movie. It does, the one, his best friend. Yeah. Um, and again, you don't typically see that, uh, at least in movies. If you read yeah. Stephen King, you'll see that a lot. Yeah. He has no problem killing kids in his yeah. books. Um, but, uh, yeah, even though they killed that kid, that, that pastiche of horror movies still stands firm, is that typically if the main characters are kids, the jeopardy goes down for me because yeah. so few films have the balls to kill children. Until they honestly do that big-budget adaptation of It, I don't think we're going to see it. <laughs> no. Another thing that took me out of uh, Silver Bullet was the narration by Megan Follows. Yeah. Um, it's Why is she telling the story? Yeah, it's pretty cheesy. Um, it, it's hard doing narration with a film. It it, it does it can work, you know. It it it, it I've seen movies where it does work, yeah. but in Silver Bullet it doesn't. You don't need it. It doesn't seem like it's her story to tell either. No. In a lot of ways, I don't know why they chose to put it through her eyes. It's yeah. Certainly not the way they do it in the book. No, but it's a choice of the film. And yeah, her overlaid narration and the sort of sweet flowery score that they have for it yeah. makes it feel like almost like a Sunday night Disney special or something yeah. like that. Like and then people she, get their heads ripped off. <laughs> yeah, even how she, you know it ends the film, it it, it just sort of like it it plunks uh, because of her narration at the end. Yeah. And then it was over. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I love you. What, what's the Corey Hing character's name again? Danny, or? Danny, I think that's right. Oh, let me see here what we got. Uh, wheelchair bound, thirteen year old boy. <laughs> They're not going to tell us. They're not going to tell us. Marty, Marty, Marty. Yes, I love you, Marty. Yeah, no, no. How about, I love you, Uncle. <laughs> Your yeah, uncle yeah. kind of took a couple for the team. Yeah, the uncle goes through a lot, actually. His pride is taking a beating. Again, yeah, it would make sense if the kid in the wheel, Marty, was the main character, or yeah. if the uncle was the main character, or how about this one for a wrinkle, the priest? Yes. Um, there, was, there was a lot of more obvious choices to make than making follows. I don't think this is a horrible movie. No. And I, I think that, like, if you if you in the mood for a werewolf movie, this yeah. is definitely one of them, and yeah. it definitely works. And uh, it has no problem killing off characters that you like. Yeah, uh, you get a lot of time to know these people. You get to know the town, yeah. and uh, a sizable bite is taken out of it by this wolf. Yeah, it's yep. reasonably exciting. I think the worst special effects are pretty much over with after the first forty minutes. Yeah, and uh, you can have a good time with them. This is a solid but not amazing popcorn yep. horror movie. I guess the one thing that. Re- that kind of hurts for also Silver Bullet, and this is more just the choice of casting and, and how the director d- decided to go with it, was, and uh, Jolene had never seen this film, okay. and we're watching it, and the second the priest shows up, she goes, that's the werewolf right there. Right. And it is. I mean, really, short of having a big sign saying, I am the werewolf, I am the werewolf. It's not we, a big mystery to the film. No, no. So when the dream sequence happens in the middle of the film to reveal that he is the werewolf... We are not surprised. Yeah. Even a thirteen-year-old child. Why are we know. spending time with this character? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I mean, and that's part of the, part of what a lot of werewolf movies do is is who is the werewolf? That there's a mystery element to it, and the mystery is not very good with this movie. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. I mean, again, there's no gotcha moment. There's no like. Yeah. There's no mystery really to be solved. I uh, like you say you, you know who the bad guys, and there are a lot of like mini good and bad guys throughout the movie too. I yeah, there's that one redneck who has to go and get this werewolf, and 
Yeah, right, we right. talked about it before. The sequence with all the rednecks in that fog bank that's yeah. like uh, up. They're all like nipple deep in fog. They can't see anything, and it's it's almost like a, a series of shark attacks are happening. People just get sucked into the fog. Yeah. Um, by all means, check out Silver Bullet if you're looking for a way to kill 95 minutes on a, on a can, summer you night. Can you can do a lot worse. You can do a lot worse. If the future were in your hands, Taurus is screaming. The house is burning. Would you change it? Hurry up! Hurry up! It's not too late. Touch this man's hand, and you are in the grip of the dead zone. I've had another episode. Only the imagination of author Stephen King could take you there. Johnny, wait. With a power that alters the future lives of those you love. You want to kill your own son? I want you out of here. I'm scared, Dad. Or of those you fear. I have had a vision that I am going to be president of the United States someday, and nobody... I mean, nobody! Gonna stop me. Is it a power for good or for evil? If God has seen fit... To bless you with this gift, you should use it. Bless me? You're a devil. Son of a man. Who are you? Who sent you? I'm scared, sir. So I was talking about Sam Raimi kind of uh, trying to get himself credit, doing more sort of straight-laced, legitimate fare other than wackiness. Uh, David Cronenberg is always interested in doing genre crazy movies, but there was a time where, you know... He was basically doing for higher jobs for in Hollywood. <laughs> well, what's interesting out there? I want a paying gig. I like making my low-budget Canadian horror movies, but I'm not making the mad cash. So what's a project that I can back a dump truck full of money to my house to, right? <laughs> and a lot of people will say there's no, not a lot of artistic sort of integrity. There's not a lot of art necessarily in that, it's especially in somebody whose background is doing much more arty things and who would go on to do much more sophisticated things. Strange to it, though, in this period, he made two of my favorite David Cronenberg movies. One of them being the Jeff Goldblum Fly. The other being hmm. this one, The, the Dead Zone. Hmm. Uh, it's based off of a novel by Stephen King. With the interesting conceit, he wanted to write a novel where the main character is typically what we would see the worst person ever. At the time, he was thinking it was someone who would be an assassin. At the time, the, the, the death of televised death of John F. Kennedy lays large in the American consciousness still does. But he wanted to tell a story about a guy who was trying to kill a president, and he was right to do it. <laughs> that was the conceit. It didn't quite play out, and then he's trying to kill a presidential candidate. But his reasons are is that Johnny Smith, as played by Christopher Walken, has been given this gift-slash-curse of being able to see the future. And upon shaking the hand of this presidential candidate, he sees that this man is crazy and will directly be involved with causing, essentially, the end of the world. This is where sort of the movie ends. One of the interesting things about it is that it's basically a fragmented story. There's sort of a bunch of little stories that get mm -hmm. us to this big moment at the end. But we see the origin story of how Johnny gets his powers. And we see, you know, the discovery of the powers, and then we see him using his powers for good. And we sort of see him reconciling with his lost past. Uh, all of these, I think, really well-handled, really interesting themes. It's a strong novel. It's a fairly strong conceit for a story. And I think 
in the hands of Cronenberg. You know, they could have done a lot worse. Uh, it's very Canadian-made, and uh, we will spot the Canadian talent to the left and right of this. But uh, for a Hollywood, you know, sellout production, I thought Cronenberg brought some pretty good movie. But uh, I'm willing to hear a second opinion. So uh, what does Lolo think of The Dead Zone? Well, I certainly enjoyed it. Maybe because I don't pay attention to the names. I don't even. I didn't even remember that it was a Cronenberg movie. So all that context in terms of what else he's done, it didn't really matter. I was just watching it as right. a movie. Um, of course, the Canadian content is fun to spot, and because it's a little bit older, then they're all young and shiny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Except the ones that weren't even young and shiny at that point. But, uh, <laughs> Um, it is kind of funny to see Christopher Walken so young and on like dorky, like yeah. the initial scenes with the fiance that like he just, looks like, like a thirteen-year-old boy on the first day of school. It's really <laughs> crazy. There's a scene early in the movie where he's reading the the Raven by Edgar mm -hmm. Allan Poe, and it, it it's not meant to be a funny scene at all. But there's just something so strange and hilarious. Well, he's just so earnest and excited about it too. That's why, like, the dorkiness of it is, yeah. is funny. But a lot of good teachers are kind of dorks. Yeah. And I think you gotta get the feeling like Johnny Smith. We just don't see him like that yeah. very often. And, and because his persona has become increasingly dark and chalky and rough, you know, it's kind of nice. Like Johnny Smith is named Johnny Smith for a reason. He's kind of like the ultimate everyman, you know. Mm -hmm. And he had all of these great things, you know. He had a job that he loved, and he was a teacher, and he was good at it. It was well suited to him. And he had this woman who he was in love with, uh, uh, Brooke Adams, and. It's, very easy to be in love with her. She's 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 cool. <laughs> I'm a fan of Brooke Adams. Um, so, you know, what could possibly go go wrong? Well, a horrible horrible car accident and uh, putting him in a coma for several years. So much so that the time he wakes up, his beloved has married and uh, had a child with someone else, and uh, he is a forever changed person. And over and above having to deal with that rehabilitation, he finds he has this ability to see into the future, and specifically into the future, it seems, of negative events. The first and one of the more memorable ones having to do with uh, the nurse who's taking care of him, her, her house is on fire, and he sees a vision, it's very well realized, it, it appears as if his hospital bed and everything around him lights up and he can see this little girl huddling, hiding in the corner of the room mm -hmm. with all the flames around her and it's very real and it's happening right now mm -hmm. and he knows it and uh, I think one of the strengths of uh, Christopher Walken's performance is in spite of the fact that he is undeniably Christopher Walken and he looks dorky when he grabs that nurse's arm and tells her she's screaming there's still time you believe him <laughs> and like as that nurse like you like uh, it, it sort of brings my parental vibe <laughs> like like you know you want to believe in psychic power so someone could tell you that if that was happening to your kid right and uh it, it was one of those great sort of accidental things when they shot that scene uh, i found out in the documentary uh because they had fire on the end of the bed where uh, Christopher Walken was, they had to coat him in this gel. So when you look at that scene, like the lights bouncing off his face, and it looks crazy, but it actually reads as sweat, and it just mm -hmm. adds another like layer of craziness to that vision. There's just even the accidents helped to make that sequence work. 
And I think that that is the strength of the movie, the visions that he has, and, and Christopher Walken's reaction and dealing with them, I think are very, very strong. Mm-hmm. Um, Martin Sheen <laughs> shows up <laughs> in this movie. Uh, I'm a big Martin Sheen fan. Um, uh, he was fresh off of, I believe, Firestarter, which was a, coincidentally another Stephen King movie at this time. Um, but uh, in the book, he has a much bigger character. We actually sort of, as we follow the story of Johnny's life, we sort of peripherally follow his rise through being a, a door-to-door salesman who kicks dogs to death when he's having a bad sales day to uh, a candidate for presidency. <clears throat> in the movie, in order to streamline it, this is one of the things that got cut out. Um, instinctively, I think that maybe I might have cut out the, the subplot of this murder. It's interesting as well handled in the movie, but it does seem like another movie in itself. Johnny helps the police department investigate a series of murders in the small mm-hmm. town. And he does successfully find the killer, and the killer happens to be a member of the police force. Um, all of that, that little Microsoft cause of movie, <laughs> it, it really, it could be a movie by itself. And if you pulled that story out of the movie, the rest of the movie would still sort of click together and work, <laughs> right? Right. Um, I do like that that stuff is there, but it, it's, in a way, less necessary than I think having the shared sort of parallel rise of these two figures because the movie, or the story, is sort of the collision course between these two forces. Johnny obviously representing the force of sort of purity and good, and, you know, the Martin Sheen character, the opposite of that. And I think I missed that a little bit. As a result, the Martin Sheen character just seems like gonzo, crazy, kind of underexplored lunatic in, in a way. And Stephen King does write characters like that. He has been guilty mm-hmm. of that in the, in the past. Just in this case, that character wasn't that. He was actually very real and fleshed out. And he wasn't just... I mean, he was evil, but we knew him. And in the movie, we hmm. don't. Okay. Uh, but, I mean, that's me looking for some thread to pull. Because I, I like the movie a lot. So, uh, what did you think? And uh, this is something that's uh, always said strange to me in the book and in the movie. The Brooke Adams character sort of has that... Gives him that one day together. It's an odd choice. I think I can understand it. Yeah. Like, because she's accepted and loves her life now. But she knows that for both of them, there's something there that's unsettled and without and having time together. I think it's significant. I'm not sure how clear it was in the book. But, like, she invited him to stay. To stay over. To yeah. consummate their relationship. And he chose to not. Yeah. So he chose to drive in bad weather and get in a car accident rather than to sleep with her, which was a really dumb decision <laughs> to make, right? Um, and, you know, to, to him, that was last week, right? Yeah. To her, so something like seven, six five or years. five years, yeah. So, uh, but it is still interesting, like, that uh, she would let them have that day together. Yeah, in reality, it's hard to imagine, like, doing that and being in a married relationship and going back to things and things being normal, right, in your marriage. But at the same time, like, in movie world, it, it makes sense that she wanted, she wanted to have it for her as much for him, right? That they needed, she needed to acknowledge that part of their life and that they waited long enough, as she said, right? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, 
Yeah, I don't know. So all of this culminates. Uh, I guess I do want to say that uh, there is an aberration to his visions too. I don't know, like, I don't know if you could say this is breaking a rule because it is still in a weird way tied to death. But his doctor, he has a vision of his doctor being rescued uh, from World War II from being subjected to the horrors of internment and torture. But he recognizes in the vision that not only did this woman put this boy uh, in a safe place so that he would be rescued, but that she herself survived. So the potential of his power wasn't necessarily just to prevent the negative. Just to see the like, death, but he could understand. The other thing, too, like he knew, he knew that she was alive and where she lived and where to find her, right? Like just that, like knowing, not just that he had seen it in the vision as we see it. Yeah. But that he knew a bigger story of it. It's like Johnny Smith is ostensibly uh, like he becomes a superhero. <laughs> <laughs> he has all of these powers. Uh, so, uh, unfortunately, th it, well, interestingly, they did turn this into a TV series starring The Brain from uh, The Breakfast Club, <laughs> Anthony Michael Hall. I haven't seen the show, but uh, but basically it would become that, you know, he is a superhero, he is a psychic investigator, he can solve crimes or, or cure hauntings or whatever. Such is not the case that we're given here. And I think part of the strength and power of both the book and the, <laughs> the movie is that um, he is unsuccessful in his assassination attempt. He does not kill the Martin Sheen character, but he destroys the Martin Sheen character. Mm -hmm. So he's victorious and he dies in the arms of the person that he loves knowing that he was victorious, but it still feels like this huge tragedy. <laughs> this, the life of Johnny Smith was a huge tragedy. It was someone who was trying to do good, and bad shit happened to him. And roll credits. And usually a movie like that doesn't leave me saying, wow, that was a good time, I think people should watch that. Mm -hmm. But I walk away from the dead zone in spite of all of that heaviness, saying that was entertaining, people should watch it. Mm -hmm. And. Uh, Yes, it is made in the 80s, and yes, there are elements to it that are dated, but I actually kind of find it adds another layer of charm to it, in a way. It's <laughs> Seeing it through that filter, if, if it really bothers you, just pretend it's all very specific Wes anderson each set design. <laughs> it's all retro. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, honestly. Um, I, I get tired because I've heard people say, you know... I'm not going to watch a movie from 1982 because that's old, mm -hmm. right? Or movies that are black and white. Who says that? That's bullshit. Old, right? <laughs> it is bullshit. It is bullshit. Sometimes, you know, people are wearing shoulder pads and hilarious hair and they're asking you to take them seriously and you just I mean, gotta let there it. there is a style to it. It's stiffer, right, than what we see in more modern movies that are, like, flashier and cut, they're cut way faster yeah, and that kind of stuff. A little less polished to you know? it. But, but whatever, it's a story. Yeah. Watch the dead zone. If we're quiet, if we listen, we can hear houses breathe. We say haunted, but we mean the house has gone insane. From the imagination of Stephen King comes a disturbing new epic tale. There are rumors that you're planning a scientific investigation of Rose Red this summer, a sort of psychic field trip. Is that true? For Professor Joyce Reardon... My goal is modest. A single twitch. It's time to stop the silliness. The truth is out there. 
When I come back from Rose Red with proof, you are... It's sleaze. It's a spit-in-the-eye of rational thought. Now, she has assembled a team of gifted psychics. Hello, are, are you the group? I think we're ready. To unravel the secret... Waking up Rose Red is not a good idea. Rose Red is a dangerous place. ...that was built to last. Rose Red was built by John P. Rimbauer. What makes Rose Red one of the world's most fascinating psychic artifacts is that after 1950, Rose Red grew on its own. Follow me and prepare to be amazed. So I have a weird fascination, and I'll even say love, for Stephen King. I, I, I've, I've read a lot of his books. I couldn't say all of them because I, I have to do other things with my life. But um, <clears throat> I do consider myself a fan while acknowledging that he's sometimes problematic. But I'm a fan of him as a writer of novels and short stories. I do not think having Stephen King necessarily as your screenwriter is a good thing. That um, said... Maximum Overdrive? <laughs> maximum Overdrive. Uh, there's plenty of examples. That said, uh, the way some people have a weird affection for, like, I don't know, Star Trek The Next Generation, which, if we're real, just isn't a good show, or for, I don't know, some derivative 90s TV <laughs> show, mm -hmm. I kind of have this weird fascination for all of these made-for-TV adaptations of Stephen King that happened throughout the 90s. This Rose Red movie we're going to talk about was actually in 2002, but throughout the 90s, you were basically getting these Coles Notes PGized versions of Stephen King. They're basically making Stephen King, which is absolutely horrifying, accessible to a TV audience. And I don't know, I've always enjoyed watching them when I was, especially when they were airing, I would get really excited about them. And I have this weird affection for them, even though I know a lot of them are bad. We reviewed Sometimes They Come Back, and it was just, oh an, just an atrocious movie, an atrocious movie. But uh, for some reason, I enjoyed watching it. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me. Um, so when we come to this Rose Red miniseries, which was aired over three nights, and uh, as we watch it now, that, that gets to a, almost four and a half hours of running time. Um, basically, we have Stephen King's take on... The Haunting of Hill House, basically. He's riffing on that, and he brings a huge cast of characters, and in his typical television adaptation ways, he says, TV giveth in giving him more length and more room to tell the story that he wants, but it taketh away in his ability to use the level of violence and language and sex or whatever that he would typically do. And right. so what we get here is sort of a friendlier, cuddlier Stephen King. All of this preamble leading us to the front doors of Rose Red, which is not good. <laughs> but uh, uh, that's, that's, that's where I come in. I, I come into this as a fan of Stephen King, even as a fan of his shitty TV movies, as a person who wants to like this. And I, I don't. I think you might have kind of nailed it when you were talking about your introduction with Stephen King's 90s adaptations which were just all over all over TV throughout the 90s um, Rose Red feels like it's behind its time that it should have been released five or six years earlier it it feels like a 90s movie that was made too late yeah and so it's got it's just got that 90s TV aesthetic which it doesn't work at this point yeah um, it's not scary and uh, worse than that, I think that it is 
a mix of borrowed elements. Stephen King is left and right stealing from either himself or from Shirley Jackson or from genuinely interesting historical things. There, you know about, uh, I believe it's the, the Winchester Winchester House. Yeah. yeah. This woman believed that she was going to be haunted by all the people who died from Winchester rifles. But she somehow thought that they could only haunt your house if you were living in a completed house. So her house never finished construction. <laughs> uh, that's something that's borrowed in Rose Red. The opening of the movie where we have a psychic child causing a rain of rocks to fall on a house after she's been bitten by a dog is ripped right out of the pages of Carrie. Uh, this character that we have of this unbelievable mother's boy who has hidden sort of talents um, is Harold Lautner from The Stand, just repurposed in another story. We're seeing right. other characters ripped out of other stories and thrown into this significantly less interesting one. Yeah, one of the things that I appreciated about this for a while, and maybe I I'm, I'm, don't have the encyclopedic knowledge of Stephen King that you do, um, is it was so there's like an ensemble group of psychics in this obviously haunted house and i thought it was kind of interesting to see their dynamics play off of each other for a while so uh this was almost four hours i watched it over the course of a night and then the next morning when i went to bed after two hours i was still kind of i didn't love it but i was still kind of into it because i thought the characters were interesting enough in their ways. Some of their dynamics were okay. Um, the the character that you're talking about, um, Emery, who is the like the nerd psychic. I thought he was overacting a little bit too much. Agreed. Um, sometimes he he managed to um, reel it in a little bit, but mostly I think he was overplaying the character. Um, but he was still kind of interesting to me. I was I was curious to see where he would go if he was going to be. Uh, secretly a helpful character, secretly a hindrance, and I'm mean, one of the nice things we could say about this is even though he was too much at times, and a lot of times, I thought his character arc was kind of interesting. Yeah, well, and I think that this type of character is something that, that Stephen King really likes, right? This nerdy, misunderstood, intelligent, but, uh, you know flawed character <laughs> um, yeah and kind of like a bully and a victim of bullying yeah he's um, a just, he's a bully because he had been a victim basically yeah, yeah. Um, but the first time we were introduced to him he's a psychic that's going to go to this house and he's at home eating whipped cream out of the fridge and then he turns around and all of the the fridge is just covered in blood and there's horrible apparitions coming out and he seems sort of annoyed and he tells them not to bother him because he needs the money so like don't try to scare me away i'm right. i'm gonna get paid five thousand dollars to investigate this house uh and i i i kind of liked that moment i thought it was a scare that seemed not scary to me a little bit heavy-handed so i liked the way that he was just sort of disinterested in it um i, I like again I, I get, i've seen that character before and done better that's sort of where i begin and end with emory some of the more problematic things, too, is for me, the main character, uh, played by Nancy Travis, uh, her Dr. Joyce Reardon, she's supposed to have this huge sort of tragic arc where she is sort of driven insane by this need to prove this supernatural stuff. 
And I've seen Nancy Travis in other movies. I'm a, I've got a soft spot for So I Married an Axe Murderer. And, you know, I don't think she's a bad actress, but I'm kind of embarrassed for her in some of the scenes in this movie. And I don't even think it's her fault. I think some of the dialogue is just ear-crushing. <laughs> like, I, I think whoever was directing this... Um, he was getting them to overact because she was overacting, you know, the crusty old head of her department. Yeah. She's a, a, a professor of psychology, is it? Yeah. Uh, and her department wants to, her department head thinks that she's wasting money and wants to deny her tenure, have her tenure revoked. He was just way too evil, yeah. um, way too obtuse. Uh, very similar, actually, to the psychiatrist in Poltergeist 3. Both of them were just, they were being pushed, I assume, by the directors to go past the point of skepticism right to outright hostility. The ghosts should be enough of a villain. We don't need to bring in these extra outside sources of villains. And again, this is Stephen King stealing from himself, right? Uh, the interesting thing about that to Matthew is that the actor who was playing the Mr. Cooper character at the university died midway through the production. He had a heart attack playing tennis, dropped dead. So his whole closing element that was going to be happening in the second act had to be retrofitted and all of a sudden Emery's mother started to take a bigger role. In the, oh, that makes sense. in the later part of it. So some of the problems with Rose Red didn't necessarily have to do with, you know, the writing of the production. When you're halfway through this, you know, huge production and you lose one of your cast members, it's, that, that's really hard to course correct. Uh, yeah. It's, it's not an excuse, it's an, a reason. It's a reason, you know, or one of the reasons why I think this thing falls. Could be. I mean, I think he was overacting anyway. Agreed. Um, Agreed. <clears throat> As, as was sort of everybody in this. Uh, one of the bright, shining spots was Melanie Linsky. Yay! Uh, who is... I just rewatched her first movie, Heavenly Creatures, the Peter Jackson movie. Which it's amazing. was so good that it's an amazing she still movie. has, after all of those years on Three and a Half Men or Two and a Half Men, she still hasn't burnt all of her goodwill. No. I still like seeing her in things. Every now and then I'll bump into Melanie Linsky and I'm always happy to see her. And again, she's got a fairly thankless role here, but I think she does well with it. Yeah, and she's, I think, the only character or the only actor that's not overacting in this movie. I think her performance is appropriate. Yeah. She's the older sister of... Uh, talking about pet peeves... Uh, <laughs> the autistic her child. Young, younger sister is autistic in that... I would say it's very 90s, but I think it still goes on where people's understanding of autism is that it's kind of a superpower. Mm -hmm. And so she's like autistic in this really lame filmic kind of way. Um, so I thought the younger sister, who again, child actor, I think with not a very good actor's director, she does what she can, but I thought Melanie Linsky as the older sister did a pretty good job. Yeah, and it's another one of those really cringy things with the uh, autistic kid or whatever that she's basically as, quote, autistic as she needs to be in any given scene. Yeah, like, she gets less autistic yeah. when she deals with the handsome hero. Yeah, um, Matt Kiesler, the, quote, handsome he hero who's <clears throat> uh, hooked up romantically with the the Nancy Travis character, is another actor who I like and I think is decent, who's once again trapped in a movie that's not so great, which seems to be Matt Kieser's lot in life. <laughs> <laughs> Some of Stephen King's dialogue that 
when you read it in a book, it would be fine, you know, uh, Russian hand and Roman fingers or, or, or just weird turns of phrase that he likes to use and repeat. I find a lot of times in the books, you can sort of autocorrect it in your own brain to make it work. But when he tries to ham-fistedly squeeze that into a screenplay, it's way worse in the televised TV version of The Shining. But there's some of it going on in here, too, where people say things to themselves or just generally that just nobody would say that. Nobody would ever talk that way to themselves or anyone else. It just it breaks any reality to it. Also, at the beginning of every episode, <clears throat> there's a shot of the house where Nancy Travis does some ominous voiceover. Right. And some of the stuff she says is just ridiculous. Uh, I wrote down this one line, and she's like, I guess saying these profound aphoristic things that don't make sense. She says, as our bodies grow old, so too do our houses. Like, <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> you mean everything <laughs> I mean, gets older at the same time? <laughs> Actually, your body gets... It seems to get withered quicker than a house would, but I mean, sure, who would disagree? Time passes, and so that happens to houses. Yeah. Um, but they, I mean, it's just filled with it. Like, if you just ran together all of her voiceover dialogue, it would just be, I don't know what, five minutes of just what the fuck aphorisms, yeah. stuff that's not necessarily not true, but does, is not worth saying. And the time that we spent setting up all of these different psychic investigators and how they have different things, the, the one woman the, of the family tree of Deschanel, <laughs> whenever she touches an, audio, uh, an object, she can sort of find out things about the past. Or another woman has this writing skills where she can write and communicate to the ghosts. And another, the older fellow has this precognition where he can sort of anticipate things that are going to happen a few seconds before they do. But... They don't do anything with those few characters. They spend a lot of time setting them up, but once they're in the house, they're either just wiped off the table right away or in a different room <laughs> for the bulk of this, this, what we're shown. So, I don't know. It's another one of these movies that I, like, I feel the potential to the left and right. I don't think the cast sucks, but I think that they're having a real hard time. <laughs> and four and a half hours, it, it's kind of punishing. But here's the weird yeah, thing, Yeah, I, I don't think that that's really that fair to criticize its length, because, I mean, it is a miniseries, right? Yeah. Like, you couldn't criticize the bad season of American Horror Story because it's 13 yeah. hours or whatever. Well, I, I guess I see what you're saying. But the weird thing to me is that I'm saying all of these terrible things about Rose Red, and I've gone through that journey. This was probably my fourth or fifth time. And I know for some fucking reason, maybe not soon, maybe five years from now, maybe ten years from now, I'll get it into my head that maybe I should give Rose Red another <laughs> try. Maybe this time it will be the movie I hope it to be. I, I have a problem when it comes to Stephen King, but I don't necessarily, not to the point where I'll make excuses for it, right? Much the way a Star Trek fan loves the Star Trek The Next Generation or loves the original series, but in their heart will concede that there's a lot of shit there. <laughs> I love Stephen King, but there's a lot of shit there. And as example, Rose Red. Uh, after having watched the first two episodes of this, kind of binge-watching it one night, starting at around midnight, so I was getting pretty sleepy, um, I kind of wanted to put in the last disc and see how things played out. So there's not, there's not really much good that I can say about it exactly, but, but it I keeps you watching like it. Watching it, uh, I did. I didn't like the way it ended. <clears throat> Excuse me. The the last disc was, or the last episode was certainly the weakest, um, but there was something 
I don't know what it was, some sort of X factor that was kind of interesting. Um, another thing about the characters, there was that, the handsome British guy from Arachnophobia, mm -hmm. who's, uh, I think he was also Warlock in the Warlock. Julian Sands is his name. <clears throat> he was really interesting too, in some ways with his dynamic with Emery, because he was like, like, handsome, kind of heroic, really nice to the autistic girl, but mean to Emery, meaner than he had to be. Emery was kind of mean to the autistic girl, so he was, Julian Sands was kind of defending her, but then his behavior went full on into bullying behavior as well. Um, so their dynamic was kind of interesting, and I just liked watching the way um, the characters played off of each other. Yeah, uh, I was saying that I think that Julian Sands actually performance-wise, can hold his head relatively high. I don't think... I mean, he didn't have as many tough lines to choke out as some of the other ones, but uh, as a rule, I've never been a huge Julian Sands fan, so I kind of was surprised that I liked his character as much as I did, comparably, anyway. But what I will say about Rose Red is this. For as long as it is, it does hold my attention, and I have watched it several times. And as a piecemeal, if somebody wasn't into Stephen King, they could watch this, and unbeknownst to them, they're getting a little piece of Carrie, and they're getting a little piece of The Shining, and they're getting little pieces of uh, other things from the Stephen King universe that I think are legit and interesting. They're just way more legit and interesting in the source material than they're ever going to be in a made-for-TV movie. Stephen King country here uh, for The Night Flyer. Um, the film is directed by Mark Pavia and he has not done another film since and this was in 1997 so I think this is a one and done for him. Um, it's probably the most obscure title out of these this list of movies yeah but um, I think for its sort of low-budget late 90s fare it's, it's a fairly solid enough entry. Um, it's interesting especially if you're a Stephen King person, if mm -hmm. you've read a lot of Stephen King and you're into the lore, because um, this character, Richard Dees, who's the central character of the story, has per has peripherally showed up in other King works, um, most significantly in The Dead Zone. And okay. he's used in The Dead Zone, much the same purpose he's used in The Night Flyer, only he, he, he comes out of the other side of Dead Stone a little better than he does in this one. Yep. Uh, um, but he is a he writes for a inside view, which is like the National Enquirer type of bullshit news grocery store rag yeah. that, that you know grandmothers and housewives like to read. And yeah. um, he specializes in either taking true crimes and and exploiting it for print, or making shit up about you know aliens delivering Easter eggs or, or whatever. <laughs> And the story here, much like his little uh, chapter in the Dead Zone, is what happens when a skeptic is finally confronted with the real deal. Yeah. Uh, 
I can sort of see this brooding, you know, cynicism developing in, in, you know, writers who can't get taken seriously and who end up, you know, writing for a rag and knowing it, this sort of bitterness mm -hmm. taking over. And they don't sugarcoat his, his character at all. No, <laughs> they don't. Ferrer, who plays this character, seems to really relish making this guy a bastard. He uh, is a dick. 100% <laughs> dick. Um, but it's well realized. I mean, the portrayal is doing service to the character and the script. This is who this guy is. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's always right. 100% of the time when he does these investigations or make up story, he is the mastermind. Mm -hmm. So he really gets a burr in his ass about this night flyer, yeah. this uh, serial killer, because the ridiculous connections he's making to, you know, sell the story as a, <laughs> you know, vampire serial killer actually add up. Yeah. They actually make sense. And uh, he wants to, I don't know what he wants to get out of this confrontation other than to prove to himself that it's not a vampire. Or, you know, what is his journey? Yeah. Does he want to disprove this? Or does is he actually spending his life looking for this confrontation with evil? Is this um, his albatross? Yeah. The original story can be found in Nightmares and Dreamscapes, which I recommend heartily. Okay. Uh, Damien, what did you think of the Nightmare? Um, I, this one was one that I, um, Stephen King is one of those writers, you either really like him or you really don't like him. Right. And I'm kind of on the side of I'm not really liking you're him You're in so the don't like I'm not, it was like, um, it was, it was interesting, like, I, at first, when I was watching it, um, I was thinking, oh yeah, this movie was made in the 80s. And then I realized, nope. no, it's made in the 90s. Oh. <laughs> it's oh. obviously fairly low budget. Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh. And uh, it was like Miguel Ferrier, who was playing the main character, was uh, hating his life for about an hour and a half. <laughs> he was just like, <laughs> he just was like, uh, he really did play this character who just didn't like it. Um, I, I was terrified because he was like so driven to chasing this thing. And... I'm like, are you crazy? You are literally walking into the den of a predator and you're armed with a camera? Yes. What are you gonna do? Yes. Picture him to death? I, I, but this, the psychology of that is true with everyone. We might not walk into an empty hangar where we are pretty sure there's a vicious murderer with a camera to confront it, but we will make decisions and make choices that basically it's the equivalent of us designing a trap, laying down in the trap, and then springing the trap, and then going, oh my god, I'm in a trap! Yeah, you I know? know. We bring ourselves, we undo ourselves, and it's something that, that a lot of people have. Rarely does it involve a vampire, but I do think that the, the psychological worm that's being turned here is that, that uh, sometimes we don't do ourselves fa favors with our obsessions. Mm -hmm. Sometimes what we think we want is not what we want. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, let's see, what else do I have here? Just, e, uh, I really, uh, uh, I wanted to like it more, Larry. I really did, <laughs> but I just didn't. It's, I don't have any happy notes for this one. Oh, I just, okay, let's hear some unhappy notes. Um, it was, it, it just felt like the director, um, he, it was like he was trying to, uh, you know, bank for his uh, cocaine retirement fund on this one because this is right around the time of, like, Stephen King films were, like, really very popular. And there was some very good stuff, like It, for example, scared the ever-loving shit out of me and still does. Yeah, well, um, get ready because apparently they're going to do a feature on that soon. Oh, my God. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nightmare juice fuel. Welcome to it. Um, but 
I don't know. It just felt like uh, when they were going through, when the guy was going, like it started out in the beginning and you see this extremely booksome grandmother character. And I mean, like her boobs were like torpedoes. They were just <laughs> leading the way. You, they were like night lights. You can land planes on them. But, uh, but the night flyer was there busily murdering her husband and she was getting all dolled up to be the next on the, on the, the munchie list. Yeah. Um, and then the guy is, you know, you come from his perspective, and and we're at the rag, and no one in the, at this newspaper is likable. No one. Nobody. There's like the little scrappy Jimmy Olsen character. I don't like her. And then there's the veteran. I don't like life. I don't like him. And then there's the editor. I'm a dick, and I'm gonna screw you all over. Bam. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I I want to find sympathy with these characters, but I'm finding no sympathy. I'm nothing likable. Well, and perhaps it's a Stephen King grinding his axe with the tabloid newspapers. That's which, probably uh, true. You know, he does. And probably doesn't have the biggest feeling of, and in his mind, you know, ending up at a place like that, if that's how you're sustaining yourself in your 40s, you have not made it as a writer. <laughs> it's true, and yeah, and that's probably what Stephen King was probably getting at. And you know what? He succeeded because I absolutely detested and loathed to varying degrees a lot um, of his characters. And as much as it is the destruction of this Richard D's character, it is oh. also sort of the birth, like he used to call it the Jimmy Olsen character. Yeah. This woman who was uh, impressed by Peter D's, or Peter D's, by Richard D's for some reason, yeah. because uh, she's been a fan of his bullshit <laughs> work, right? Her goal, her life goal is to be a reporter as cool as this asshole, right? And she gets her wish. Oh, she sure does. <laughs> so, again, the one person that we could have maybe anchored with and liked ends up, you know... And ends up perpetuating the cycle. Yeah. And, and, in fact, by her... Um, her spin at the end, you know, framing her former icon as the, the terrible... Spoiler alert, by the way, boys and girls! Spoilers! <laughs> yeah. as, as supposedly the mass murderer of the Night Flyer. Um, she's basically allowed the Night Flyer to continue his orgy of destruction. I guess we haven't really done real service to the plot here. The basic idea of this vampire is a vampire who lives in the modern age. He has his own, you know, small plane that he will land in small out of the way stretches and he will kill people feed and then fly on to the next post um, and all of these sort of romantic ideas of the vampire sort of that's where we see it mm -hmm. not he'll even stay there for a couple days and refuel and sort of put his feet up and live with these people before he dispatches them yeah um, and it's kind of interesting to see them uh, you know totally willing to cover his tracks and doing everything they can before he kills them and leaves. Oh, yeah. I thought that was a pretty interesting uh, thing. And for a, a movie that had a lot of sort of almost made-for-TV gloss to it, yeah. when the violence did come, it's actually pretty harsh. <laughs> like, all of a sudden, nope, this is an R-rated movie for a second. And yeah. now back to the goofiness. And all back to the goofy. Uh, and what was funny, one of the things that I found hilarious is that his black Cessna would always leave little... Puddles. Little puddle poop puddles of dirt filled with worms and yeah. maggots and other crawling things of the dark earth um i, I was like wow he's got a a compost manufactory of epic proportions <laughs> I, i'm pretty sure that there were victims mixed into the lot after he was finished with them it's like gotta refresh the pile no. But I think it's an attempt to modernize the vampire in sort of the similar way when we talk about Near Dark is they're trying to transplant sort of a gothic creature to the modern age. Yeah. It's fair enough conceit. You say you're not a big Stephen King fan, and I think that will probably work against you for the movie. I, I certainly don't think this movie is amazing, by the way. I think it's all right. Yeah. It's a different enough take on the, on the killer, but if 
for instance, you are into the Stephen King, the Inside View paper is featured in a lot of his books, like Meatful Things and Bag of Bones. We'll make reference to that same newspaper. I suspect if I had sort of a little more backfill from like previous stories, like, you know, the characters overlapping, yeah. it might have, I might have been able to go, oh, I have a little bit of resonance with this character, but it's just Stephen, like... Stephen King himself has said that there's a connection to a different short story called Popsy, where the Night Flyer himself could be Popsy. Which implies that that he is not a lone vampire. He was he was on vacation or flying around by himself, but he is part of a family of vampires. Because in that short story, this guy who uh, makes his living kidnapping children, another happy protagonist, Whee! kidnaps the wrong kid from the wrong mall, what? and Daddy comes to hunt his shit down. <laughs> oh lordy! Yeah, and uh, basically that's the same character here. And if you know that about it, it sort of enriches the experience. Yeah, and, and that's part of the Stephen King. Thing. If you do dig in and get into Stephen King, uh, you can see references to his other stories within his and that And that's probably the context that I'm missing. Yeah. And I, I um, just didn't quite... Beyond that, it's another vampire movie. Mm -hmm. I've seen way worse. <laughs> like, I have seen I way have. worse. No, and you know what? <laughs> Truly, I have actually seen way terrible, worse things where it's like, you're just like, what am I doing? And it's like, but it's a vampire movie, and as I've mentioned before, I'm a whore. Yeah. I will watch it. <laughs> and leading to that confrontation, when, when Dees does go into that place, he has to, at this point, know he's confronting real evil. And the interesting thing is, is that he chooses to go and confront that evil anyway and damn the consequences. And does he confront it? Because the Night Flyer saved it for the last. <laughs> I love that he practically, he's like, hey, uh, Dees, do you hear this? chorus of shrieks and screams and yeah. horrific things and I was like that sounds like an epic killing and it was <laughs> indeed indeed and uh, these will go down in infamy and yeah. uh, the Jimmy Olsen character will take his place yeah. and presumably be a terrible person until the fateful day where she encounters the her night, night flyer or the whatever night flyer. Or, or, or some other creature equally monstrous yeah. um, it seems to be inevitable because it's tied to it's a, it's a story that's a piece of a bigger world and mm -hmm. I, I do like that about it and if you're not in Stephen King context you might not get that and that's otherwise you're just going to get a decent vampire thriller and yeah. you know what if you're in the mood for that go to you <laughs> camera. Yeah. Bill if you'll come with me you'll float too so in the very first episode of Rankin Review, if you listen to it uh, from way back in September of 2013, I'm super excited about the announcement of this It movie getting made. And if you listen to the Stephen King episode where I talked about it, you know, it, it's ties to my childhood, both the novel and the TV miniseries. So it's a story that I love. It's a book that I love. It's personal to me. I come in really, really, really wanting this movie to be good and as a Stephen King fanboy. So uh, it, that's both good and bad for the movie. My anticipation of it literally four years <laughs> from, from when I was talking about it on the podcast to when it finally came out. And uh, I went to see it with uh, the current Rankin Review champion, Lee Beckman, and I came out of the theater mostly happy with the movie. <laughs> mostly happy with the movie. Um, I can't really decide if it's my love of it that's making the me have some problems with the movie, just that I'm just too invested in the book and the story, or if 
in fact, like as far as a big screen R-rated adaptation of the first half of it, anyway, or half of the story of it, I don't know necessarily what it could done to have been more authentic to the original story, but it's still not quite there for me, but it's there enough that I'm really happy general overall with it, and I would never tell someone not to watch it. But there's this version of it that exists in my brain that still hasn't quite been quenched. Does that mean that this movie sucks? No. In fact, I have a lot of good things to say about it, but I found myself fighting with it. So that's where I start on It Chapter One. <laughs> yeah, I. Um, this one will be a hard one for me to rank uh, because for me it's, it's an almost perfect combination of a highly competent movie and a highly incompetent movie there are some like you can tell this is a filmmaker that knows how to make movies some of the shots are really good some of the shots are creative um i was quite looking forward to this um because i i mean i've subsequently read the novel i grew up at the right time for the 1990 um movie which the TV movie, which I had, no, I had no idea what it was before I watched the movie, and I that one really stuck with me, particularly the first half that dealt more with the kids. Um, but the it was real, quite a letdown in terms of both the relationship between the children for me, and where I would say where I think it's highly incompetent is in I. I didn't get a sense that this filmmaker understands what makes things scary. Uh, so from even before the movie came out, from the promotional material, the first time I saw Pennywise, which looked like a clown that was designed by a special effects department to design a scary clown, it was sort of this demonish-looking clown, it seemed like they don't... Wh whoever was in charge of that doesn't understand why clowns are scary. Right. And if you don't understand why clowns are scary then maybe you don't understand what scary is, which I got from a lot of the clown jumps out and goes boo scenes with like really loud clanging noises, like no subtlety, no creepiness. So it was a filmmaker that really knows how to make a film, but it, for me, it didn't. he didn't really know how to make a scary film. So I found it quite unsatisfying that way. It is one of Stephen King's capital H horror novels, but especially the stuff that happens in the 50s. It's transposed to the 80s for this this incarnation of it, uh, but especially stuff dealing with the kids. Um, there's a very weird, goofy adventure quality, the, almost a Scooby-Doo gang adventure, but the stakes are impossibly grim and ugly and harsh. Mm -hmm. And I feel like he's more comfortable with these kids as buddies and sort of finding each other and connecting with each other. And the kid, uniform, all of the kids, uniformly really good. The really, performances really good. were terrific. Really, really good. Yeah. Um, but I think that that stuff really worked for me, like the kids connecting and, and you know understanding that they're on their own with dealing with this creature. But when it comes to actually the dealing with Pennywise directly is where we get a little bit shakier. I will also defend Skarsgård, by the way, in this movie. I agree with the, the approach to the clown being too effectively scary because part of the idea is that he would be a lure and 
no kid would walk up to this clown. Even if they weren't scared of clowns, I just don't believe any kid walking up to this clown. So the first scene with Georgie, when the, you know, the iconic scene where the paper boat sails into the drain and then the clown in the drain retrieves it, it, in the 1990s one, there's a reason why um, Tim Curry's clown became an iconic monster uh, or horror creature. Um, because there was like that surreal quality or that uncanny quality that clowns have. But in this, when Georgie saw the clown in the sewer, it's like, oh, there's a demon monster in the sewer that was wearing clown makeup. It is clearly just a demon monster. He's literally drooling to mm. the scene. He's literally drooling. There's nothing inviting about this clown. And that might be a little bit of a problem. But I, I mean... Because like, why make him a clown if he's just going to be a monster? In his defense, though, I have the feeling like if he'd just done exactly what Tim Curry had done, we'd be sitting here saying he was just doing a vague photocopy of what had already been attempted in 1990. I'm not sure that those are the only two choices, though. No, I mean, maybe there's a middle ground. This isn't it. But there are, theme, there are times where he does really work for me. But it's less in the direct interactions with the kids is more when he's sort of waving hello. When he dips that bundle of balloons in front of his face or when he waves at Mike with the severed arm from the bushes, a little is going a long way with Pennywise in this movie. Yeah, and his body work is really good when he's doing the dancing. Yeah. Because um, he actually looks like a marionette. And I don't know I don't know how much of that was done in post or how much of that is actually body work. But those those scenes worked for me. But he also just... Like, those lines that go down his face to give him this permanent demon-y look, it, it, it just didn't... It, it looked like it was designed by a 17-year-old or something. Or like that, when they go in the haunted house that looks like Disney's haunted castle, because yeah. it's like some set people are like, okay, design a haunted house that looks exactly like a haunted house that can be nothing other than a haunted house. But we, this is the house on Nybold Street, and this is, this is where it falls back to my King fandom. That was a sequence that I dearly, dearly missed having in the miniseries version of the book. And the house, as overwrought haunted house as it looks, is not unlike it is described as this black hole piece of the block in the, in, in, in the book. Um, it's a little bit over-affected, but it's not too far from what I pictured in my head when I was reading it. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I can't comment on what you were picturing in your head, you obviously. You can't see my dreams? I mean, I, I, I try. <laughs> uh, it didn't have a lived-in quality. Like, it looked like... A set. Yeah. And so, when they have scary experiences in it, it's hard not to think, okay, you're in, again, Disney's haunted castle. It's, it's just too... It's too so perfectly like a haunted house that it's hard to really engage with it yeah. for me. I feel like we're being really negative though. I do want to say I actually really like the movie <laughs> to a large extent and I do think that getting that many child actors that are that strong was could not have been an easy thing to do yeah. and that they had to rush through their each individual scares or what scares these kids and it could have just been, here's the next boost scene, here's the next boost scene, but I thought they were all individually different and individually effective. Uh. Yeah, I agree. Um, what This is not... Uh, I was talking to Rayleigh Perkins, friend of the show. Okay. I don't know if she's been a guest yet. I keep telling her to be a guest. But she had the observation that they should have probably shot this movie like Stand By Me with 
the monster in the background, but what's really foregrounded is these kids' relationship with each other. Yes. But that stuff felt a little shoehorned in, um, and part of it is because, like, they, they're the Losers Club, so they they have no friends, they're all outsiders, but what we actually see on screen is this group of what started as four friends or five friends, and they keep getting it's bigger. It's seven, yeah. Uh, and they get picked on by... The murderous, insane bully, but you—I I didn't get a strong sense that they were losers by the town standards. Just that this this psychopathic, mean guy and his gang of sixteen-year-olds like to beat up on the thirteen-year-olds. Right. Uh, so a little like they spend a lot of time with the kids, but I think they could have. I I think they should have foregrounded that and had the horror stuff being more subtle in the background. Right. But again, and I understand what you're saying there, and from a cinematic perspective, that's an easier thing to do. But what I love about the book is it seems like once a chapter, something fucking horrible has to happen, <laughs> and there, and, and uh, I, that's what I like in my Stephen King. As dark as that sounds, well, I, and maybe this is an endemic problem with taking a nine thousand page book and right. putting it into a two hour movie that they. They, they had to make a ton of cuts, and they made a ton of righteous cuts. And I, I'm also being focusing on the negative. Uh, I opened this by saying that it was highly competent, but I don't think I'm playing that up enough. They're, they're, I mean, we can talk about some of the, um, the ways they were framing things, like with the... Um, you know, there's a scene where... Who's the kid that's punching the sheep with the... Mike. Sh- Mike um, is killing the sheep, or he, he doesn't he have the heart. He refuses to, yeah. And then it shows the sheep going through the pen and then the very next cut is the kids coming out of class um, which is it sounds like a very heavy-handed juxtaposition but actually wasn't that heavy-handed it was just like a nice parallelism or there is a creepy painting in um, Stan's in Stan's dad's office and there is he's looking at it but then there's a scene where he's being looked at from the painting's point of view and then the painting kind of comes to life and that was just a really nice again it wasn't done too much that was the kind of subtle thing that i thought was done really well they also did some good and bad easter eggs for people who love the book and uh, i think it's a double-edged sword when you do that because it reminds you of the book and it also reminds you of the stuff that you're not going to get to see when mike sees the burning hands trying to reach through the the locked door of the the butcher shop or whatever that's a reference to the black spot chapter in the book and uh when the one kid sees the uh severed head or the 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 headless body that's a reference to one of the kids who died uh, in an explosion that happened in one of the Dare of the History things. Mm-hmm. Patrick Hockstetter is a character that we see and is one of the first people killed by it in the movie. He would hear his name, but if you know the book, you know that Hockstetter has a ridiculous and horrible backstory. <laughs> and that uh, whatever grim fate we imagine in this movie, it's fucking worse <laughs> in the book, right? So it's kind of nice, hey, there's Patrick Hockstetter, but they're not going to really give you that. Right? It's nice that they reference the black spot, but they're not going to really give you that. But the Stephen King fans there are like, the other really subtle thing is the turtle. In the book, this guiding force, the kids just name it the turtle, and that it actually takes physical shape when when uh, Stuttering Bill enters the Nexus, he sees a giant turtle. But yeah, uh, Stuttering Bill, when he thinks he sees the ghost of his brother, is holding onto a Lego block that's in the shape of a turtle. When they're mm-hmm. swimming in the... T- in the water what the quarry i think quarry it was yeah they say hey look there's a turtle so like they nudge it 
They mm-hmm. nudge it. They they acknowledge it, but they can't fully bathe in it the way that you know us weird or hardcore Stephen Kings would. I think you were right yeah, when we were talking about this briefly before we recorded that this kind of wants to be a mini series. It really needs to sprawl even more than two feature length yeah. movies will allow. Um, but considering it is a movie and it is half of the book, I really like it. I'm gonna I say that and I'm gonna go on to one more thing that I find problematic. Okay, and then I got a couple more, but. Um... I'm, not, I'm also not going to be totally negative. We like this gonna... movie. We're going to say a bunch of shitty things about <laughs> it, but then we're going to say we like it and you should watch it. Beverly Marsh. I don't remember the name of the actress, but she does an amazing job in the, in the movie. She's very young and she is very attractive. It's hard to deny. It. I mean, uh, not a sexual creature, but like uh, she's, she's beautiful in her own way. And uh, all of the boys are in love with her and that totally comes across yeah that's one thing that works well in the relationship forming where you can tell that they're into her but they don't want to they're not comfortable with it but anyway they make a crucial change with beverly in this movie and they try to make it up by making her incredibly strong and she is incredibly strong she stabs pennywise through the fucking head with a fence post and like she fucking kills her dad in this version of the story right like she's incredibly strong until she's kidnapped by Pennywise and needs to be rescued by all of the boys? Yeah, why wasn't any... I mean, so this is something that isn't in the book anyway, so why isn't it literally anybody else in the club? And it could literally be anybody else in the club. But why does it go, go back to the damsel in distress and the boys questing into the demon's lair? And then, you know... Well, this if I can use this to transition into one of the other big kind of recurring problems that I had um, is because the movie doesn't have a chance to breathe we'd never really have any idea about what the rules are with Pennywise Um, so there's we keep getting these scenes where he's almost killing these kids but then he doesn't because he can't get to them and then there's like a ridiculous scene in the haunted house where he's got the one kid cornered and then he's just like booga booga boogieing him even though he killed Georgie before he could kill him mm. but because in the book he feeds off their fear but at this point it's not obvious at all right. so he just says yum 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 your fear is delicious and then we're like okay two hours in I guess he's into fear um, but then he when he's got Beverly at the end He's like, I can't, you're, you're not afraid of me, so I'm not powerful enough to kill you. But the whole idea of her not being afraid of him is kind of ridiculous because, okay, why doesn't he just rip her arm off? Then yeah. she'll be afraid of him. Like, that's, that's not actually a good moral about not having fear. Um, it just doesn't make sense in terms of the movie. And typically the movie's tendency had been to subtract but not add. Mm-hmm. And this was a really egregious case of them making an addition that I think was wholeheartedly misguided. I still really liked the movie, and like I liked the movie enough that when that happened, like I, I was still I wasn't going to start out of the theater, but that really stuck with me because in the original book, like Bev's the only really good one with the slingshot, so she's basically their weapon going into that. They're crowding around to make sure that Bev is the safest because she's the one who's got to pull the trigger on this creature. That's completely taken from her. Again, they seem to recognize this by making her actually kill her dad and actually stab Pennywise earlier. They don't want to cheapen her strength, but they still want to put her in this position of rescue. Yeah, um, and that... I mean, the slingshot thing is also, um, 
how to put it? The, so in the last scene, well, this is more on the movie telling you stuff at the end that it hasn't figured out how to work in. So when they're in the haunted house and, and the clown is like, um, got that one kid cornered, Eddie, I think it is. Yeah, with the busted arm. <laughs> yeah, which looked horrifying. <laughs> yeah. uh, but he's not killing him. And then she stabs Pennywise in the face with a poker and then he runs away. And then she's like, he's scared of us when we're all together. Well, like, how did you know that? Uh, it could just be that you stabbed him in the eye with a poker, so he ran away. Right. Um, but I think they missed a terrific opportunity, which they had in both the book and the 90s um, one, and just, like, stories in general, where, where they're going to confront him. And so in the original story, they're making silver bullets for the slingshot because they figured out that Silver doesn't kill him because he's got any kind of inherent weakness, but there's something about their connection together where they can manifest the reality. Yeah. But then they don't have any of that in the movie, so then they just come in with sticks and hit him with metal poles. They try to bring replace the slingshot with the bolt killer that, that Mike didn't want to use before. That's the weapon that yeah. the boys bring down with them, but it doesn't hold the same talismanic significance as the one in the original. Uh, another missed opportunity. I think they were trying to keep the movie under two and a half hours long. There's rumors that when the second one comes out, they're going to do a director's cut of both and release it as one huge movie, so maybe we'll get more. But uh, in the novel, Henry Bauer, Victor Chris, and Belch Higgins follow the kids into, this, into the sewers, and they all get nice, terrible <laughs> deaths. <laughs> well, Henry Bauer ends up being rendered insane, not killed, but... There's just more meat for the grinder for Pennywise. Yeah. And there was no reason not to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why they didn't do that. But they, it, there's apparently... But there's the, that one kid that wanders into the sewer and then gets killed. Yeah, that's Patrick Hockstetter. But uh, in the novel, yeah, Belch and Victor get killed in the in the sewers while the kids are trying to find their way to, the, to Pennywise. And this one, apparently, there's a deleted scene where Henry actually kills them. Henry kills the other members of his gang before he goes down into the sewer to try and kill the rest of the kids. And again, I just think we paid our ticket to see Pennywise wreak havoc on, 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 on Derry. And really, they're top-loaded. The worst thing we see in the whole movie is Georgie. Yeah. That's the horrif most horrifying moment of the movie in a lot of ways. Uh, there's some good jump scare moments throughout it, don't get me wrong, but like as far as the violence on kids, that's it. Even Patrick Hockstetter's fate is left to our imagination. We know nothing good <laughs> happens, but... Um, so I think that this is one of those movies that's going to have this reputation. Like it or not, this is a classic horror movie. It made way too much money this and one, made too I, much ripples. I, I, I disagree. I don't think this is going to go down as a classic. Well, it's, it's a huge in the zeitgeist right now. <laughs> anyway, okay, jumping the needle then. I like the humor in the movie. <laughs> the, the kids' banter. <laughs> and, like, uh, do you use the same toilet as your mom? <laughs> you probably have crabs. <laughs> and, like, uh, the charming warmth within the group, which is not easy to accomplish on screen. It's really hard to create chemistry. Yeah. And it's, like, really strong in all of the kids. Um, it, the, if you know the story, and I think most people kind of have a vague idea of the other ones we kind of know in a way that the losers club is going to remain intact so maybe having some more people to the wayside maybe the that's why we have those actually sort of standalone short story chapters in the novel where some kid who's not involved with the losers club meets a grim fate with pennywise because he's by himself <laughs> right I, I think that I'm... gives us more context to how pennywise does his shit 
another thing that would have helped, there's an iconic scene where the bullies are chasing them. I can't remember if they're going to be that Mike. In this one, it was Mike. I don't know. In the original. But the all the kids are together, and they start throwing rocks at the bullies, and yeah. it introduces the idea that they're stronger together. But in this, it happened like four-fifths of the way through, and Mike was at the beginning, and then he weirdly disappeared, and I his character that. was given to... Um, the fat kid who became the historian which was really Mike's role and so it was like they they should have had that way earlier Um, I think they could have had they could have had some of the kids be friends already but sort of have the group expanding more towards the beginning and and making this friendship of theirs not just I mean you're right like they had good banter together and they did feel like friends but they didn't really feel like they were coming together as friends which was thematically crucial for for the story of it it's more crucial than the clown in a lot of ways the bonding of this group and that oath that they make together at the end of the movie sort of sealing it yeah um it has that problem that i've said about a lot of horror movies where it's hard to fear for the kids in the movie even though it opens with the kid getting his arm bitten off it's hard to fear for them. And then also because Pennywise keeps almost getting them. But and not. if he wanted to get them, why doesn't he kill them? And then it felt to me like this was a problem they had in editing. And they're like, oh, yeah, this doesn't look like it makes any sense. And we know from the novel that he likes them to be scared. Yeah. But he didn't mind killing Georgie right away. He didn't mind killing some of the other ones right away. So it seems like the rules are he can do whatever he wants, but just not to these kids. Right. And they're protected. This turtle, this energy between them, whatever it is. I guess uh, it's um, it feels like it would be more dependent for people who had read the novel. But obviously, like I said, it was a monster hit. People loved it. There's going to be another one in uh, next a year from September. Um, and again, like enough of it really works for me. I, I like the way they updated scenes. You know, instead of having them flip through the pages of the old photo album, it's a slideshow, and then Pennywise fucking erupts out of the screen. And a really good boo scare moment for me mm-hmm. there. Um, you know, the the scene where uh, Stan breaks his arm. <laughs> Is it Stan? I can't remember. No, it's the, it's the Eddie. hypochondriac. Eddie. It's Eddie. Yeah, Eddie breaks his arm. Uh, it's horrifying when he breaks his arm and he realizes it, but it's further horrifying when one of the kids thinks that they can fix it by snapping <laughs> oh it back gosh. in place. Oh, that brought the house down in the theater for all the horrible shit. It was them snapping his arm back into place that really fucking brought the house down. They actually did that in The Monster as well. Yeah, that's right. The mother, when she breaks her wrist in the car accident, Snaps gets it, it relocated. <laughs> Ow. Um... But again, I feel like we spent 20 minutes talking about all of the stuff that didn't work in the movie, and I want to be really clear that it does work. It's because I love this so much that I spent all the time nitpicking the shit that didn't. I liked Skarsgård for the most part in that he took a different direction on Pennywise, and uh, like you say, the physicality, the weird dance moves that he does... Um, the idea, I remember seeing the actor uh, interviewed, and he said that he liked, there's a mention in the novel that Pennywise is like its favorite thing, mask to wear, mm-hmm. and why is the clown his favorite mask, and you can sort of, I, I, I kind of felt that coming through a little bit. Um, the final confrontation is, I guess, a good fight. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's appropriate to the movie, like, it's sort of what you would expect in the movie. Scaled down. Much like everything a little bit, too, that rock fight you were talking about, the chapter in the book is literally called the apocalyptic rock fight. And it almost plays off playfully in the movie, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the stakes feel higher, generally, throughout the novel. But 
uh, I like the adventure and the journey that we're going on here. This ch half of the movie is going to feel more like sort of the, the adventure movie, the Monster Squad version of things. I think when we get to It Chapter 2, they're going to have to go lean into the horror. They're going to have to alien covenant <laughs> to say the thing. But despite the fact that I've spent 20 minutes talking about all the stuff that I didn't like, I really like the movie. I just, uh, I, I don't know that there's a motion picture that will satisfy me for it. Maybe we need HBO to spend like 20 episodes, 20 hours telling the story. I certainly don't think it would hurt. Although, I mean, the novel, there's a lot of stuff that I think could be righteously cut from the novel. Because the novel the history stuff. is quite rambly. Um, I mean, one of the reasons why I'm focusing on the negative here, uh, like I said at the beginning, this list is comprised of, it seems like movies that punch above their weight and punch below their weight. And this is a good movie. And like, so the monster had the potential for greatness, but it was already a pleasant surprise that it was much better right. than I would have expected going in. Whereas this had a potential for greatness and everything seemed to be in place that it could be great. And then there's just all of these disappointing decisions that get made at every turn. So it is like it is a good movie. Of all the movies on the list, it's one that I would have the least trouble recommending to most people. Yeah. But um, I mean, one of the reasons why I said earlier I don't think it's going to go down as a classic is because I don't know. Maybe maybe you could answer this and there's something I'm not thinking of, but imagine you're teaching a master's class on horror as you could easily teach right now. And you had this movie it on the syllabus. Right. What would you point to? Like what's, what's one really memorable set piece or what's one really memorable thing that it brings to the table? Cause it seems to me that it does a lot of things competently, but it doesn't, I don't think there's really any innovation. Right. Well, I think as far as the challenge of bearing down a novel of this, size you know and again they're only doing about half of it or a third of it really there's yeah. three novels in in it right there's the kids novel the adults novel and the history of dairy i mean for example they <laughs> very wisely decided not to bring in the wolfman which is prominently featured in the book but again they're going like what kids in the 50s would be scared of against the kids yeah. of the 80s would be scared of yeah please watch it I feel like we were talking people out of it, but we're almost at a half an hour. Is oh there anything okay. else that we need to say about it? <laughs> no. Uh, it... Despite everything we've said, it's great. I like Andrew Buscetti. I really like his movie Mama. I'm glad that they're keeping him for the next half. I think that we have a much better chance of making the adult half of it more interesting because that's where, as we've talked about, the miniseries kind of shit the bed yeah once, no no once, questions there yeah once we get into the adults it just stops working and i'm i'm not worried about that being the case i mean if you don't like the way the movie ends you don't like the way the movie <laughs> ends but it's not going to be handled badly and i go into that happily in a few years hopefully we can sit down and talk about it part two yes sir for 27 years I dreamt of you. I craved you. I missed you. We need to finish it. For good. I've seen all of us die. It consumes us from the inside until we don't have a choice anymore. You lied.
so I think the lesson to be learned from both of the it adaptations that we've seen so far is that as much as it intuitively makes sense to cleave the novel in two and tell the story of the kids and then tell the story of the adults, the story of the kids is just so much more frightening and so much more compelling and so much more just interesting than the adults that what we have is a lopsided narrative. And when reading the novel, you don't have that problem because we're constantly ping-ponging back and forth between the adults. But a lot of the time in the modern age of the story of it, as the Losers Club grown up reunites in Derry to face off against Pennywise again, and this is true in the book, other than Pennywise jumping out from behind a bureau to say, boo, and hello, I'm still here, mainly they walk around Derry and they remember their childhood that they've forgotten. And the more they remember, the more they get scared and the more they have to prepare themselves for this confrontation that happens. The scariest elements of the story, by the time we start this part of the movie, have kind of already happened. Because I think we're just more scared for children than we are for adults. It's true in the miniseries, it's true here. A lot of derision have been given to IT Chapter 2, and part of it goes to the obvious fact that it's just clearly not as good as IT Chapter 1. But is it bad? I would argue that it's not bad. It's just so much less good than part one that I understand why some people feel like it's bad. It's interesting, when Matt and I reviewed It Chapter One, we spent the bulk of the review talking about the stuff we didn't like in the movie while coming to the conclusion that we really liked it. And I feel like I'm in danger with this movie doing the opposite. Is that There's a lot of problems with the movie for me. There's a lot of problems with the movie for me. And yet, at the end of the day, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to defend IT Chapter 2. There are a few things that I do not like and that I will call out. But I think that as a whole, I'm really happy with this adaptation of the, the, the story of IT. When, not if, but when Hollywood gets around to telling this story again. They're going to have to either do it as a TV show or do it where they break it up and they ping pong the narratives. Because, like I said, we learned it in the TV miniseries and we learned it again here. The adult side of the story is just inherently less interesting and less frightening than the kid's side of the story. That's built into the novel and that's something that the movie had to deal with. Is it as good as the first half? Not at all. Is it bad? Not at all. That's where I start with IT Chapter 2. It was weird going in and sitting down into the theater and watching the lights go down for It Chapter 2, where I was going in with lowered expectations, and I couldn't really figure out why at the time. Because I really overall enjoyed Andy Muschietti's It Chapter 1. I thought he got more things right than he got things wrong. And, you know, it was one of the highest grossing horror movies ever, so I should be like, okay... Here we go. But I was going into It Chapter 2 with lowered expectations and came out pleasantly surprised. Yes, there are some problems with It Chapter 2. And yes, I agree that Pennywise just isn't as scary anymore with adults. Part of it is that we see Pennywise a heck of a lot more and a heck of a lot more in daylight, where in the first one, we see a lot of them in the dark. Um, there are genuinely 
chilling, terrifying moments to It Chapter 1 where I don't think that there's maybe one or two jump scares that maybe go, ah, but it's not a really scary movie. I don't know. That hate where crime that opens the movie is pretty fucking yeah. hard. <laughs> like No, no. I, I, I agree that the violence in the movie is nastier and more brutal. That's strange. Like, I was wincing hardcore, but I wasn't afraid at right. all. Like, I wasn't going, uh like I was in it, Chapter 1, whether it's the scene in the garage with the slide machine or, you know, they're in, they're in that room with all those sort of fake clowns of Pennywise in there. There was moments where I was going, ah, I didn't really, you know, had my fingers to my mouth at all with it, Chapter 2. Was I entertained? Absolutely. I was definitely engaged. But were you actually ever scared in it, Chapter 2? I'm a tougher cookie to scare, I think, than a lot the, the your average person. And I went in knowing, like, everything's going in. There's a few scenes that yeah. went boo, and I jumped. But uh, yeah. I wasn't gnawing on my, my hand or anything like that. But that's an increasingly rare experience for me. That's sort of the thing I'm looking for when I'm watching, like, a horror movie. <clears throat> Once yeah. again, uh, I, I some of the issues I take are, are with the changes that are kind of pointless to me. I don't know why they would make certain changes. I complained in the first movie when all the kids went down into these sewers. In the book, they're followed by Henry and his gang, and his gang gets killed off by Pennywise. It gives Pennywise more of a body count. It gives us more of what we want to see, which is Pennywise doing his thing. Same thing is repeated in the second chapter. In the novel... Uh, Bill's uh, wife follows him to Derry. In the novel, you know, uh, so yeah, why not have Pennywise kill the bullies in the sewer when the kids are there? And why not have Beverly's evil husband and, and you know, why not bring more meat to the grinder for Pennywise? Of all of the things to cut, that seems strange to me, especially considering how little the adults really, when you get down to it, have to do. They end up creating scenes and flashbacks with the younger kids uh, basically to remind us of the other better movie <laughs> in a lot of ways as opposed to helping tell the story. If you're going to split the movie in half and focus one on the kids and one on the adults, then do that. But this movie seemed to sense that we're going to be so much comparing these two movies that we had to connect it. The de-aging of the kids did kind of stand out for me. I mean, it was unavoidable, but it was definitely there. And... Um, so the solution was to find something for the adults to do. And unfortunately, I think the approach was to have more flashbacks <laughs> and uh, or create stuff. The whole business with the carnival and James McAvoy and that little kid. He has a scene where he meets a kid on a skateboard and he's living in his old house. That happens in the book. But everything else in the movie is a complete invention. And you just don't need it. You just don't need it. That was there to give McAvoy something to do other than walk around Derry and lament his lost childhood, which is, at the end of the day, what the adults are asked to do. And that, no, is not as interesting as these little kids discovering not only is there a monster in Derry, but only they can see them, and they're the only ones in a position to do anything about it. The stakes just are, consequently aren't there. Like I say, if they ever do a new adaptation of this, I think that that King had it right. We have to jump back and forth. And, like I say, give Pennywise more meat for the grinder. In both movies, Pennywise is weakened. And I don't understand that choice. I just don't. But here's some stuff that does work. 
the cast pretty much across the board i'm happy with everyone Agreed. went on Agreed. about bill Hader's performance and i'm not going to fight you on bill Hader's performance but i i really like the what, what is the guy who plays mike mustafa i can't remember the actor's name uh anyway oh, I uh, isaiah mustafa mike hanlon isaiah, isaiah mustafa plays mike yeah I felt like Mike got ripped off in the first movie a little bit. Yeah. Like his character disappears from the movie for a long time. And in the novel, he's the one who's obsessed with the history of Derry. And for some reason in the movie, they gave that to a different character. All of a sudden, Ben becomes the guy who does all the research. All of a sudden, like he is more the leader of the Losers Club for the first two thirds of this movie than Stuttering Bill. And you know what? I kind of think that works in a way. He's earned it. Everybody else got yep. to leave Derry and leave these like awesome, successful lives and forget all about Pennywise. Whereas Mike spent 30 years remembering every single terrifying thing that happened, living in abject poverty, and basically preparing for this secondary confrontation, which in the book he doesn't even get. In the book, Mike doesn't even get to go down in the sewers with them. <laughs> so... Uh, I like how much they gave Mike to do in this movie, but I think they gave Mike a lot to do at the cost of the McAvoy character because Stuttering Bill ends up with very little to do. They have to invent stuff for him to do. That's a cool sequence in the carnival. Don't get me wrong, but like, I don't know. With a a novel as generous as it, it seems weird that they felt the need to invent so much. Well, yeah, yeah. Like Some of the changes, and even some of the things they take out, I didn't mind they took out uh, uh, Bill, yeah, Bill, Bill's wife uh, narrative in the second part. It, it, she's in the first book, is she not? Well, I mean, she she's referenced because well, in, in the novel we're ping ponging back and forth, but she is in the book and she does follow uh, Bill to Derry. She is in the lair with it during the final confrontation. That all happens yeah. in the book, and it's not here at all. And I don't know yeah, why. No, like, she actually gets a bit of a character arc, and she is completely jettisoned from the movie, barring one scene where she comes across kind of like a like a door, like a douche in her own right. Well, they um, just do so that, that, little that, with her that it's like, why did you bother with the character at all? Yeah, if you're gonna do yeah. that little with her. Just just have him on a movie set, get the phone call. Don't acknowledge yeah. his wife. What was the point? Exactly, exactly. Um, and you talked about how that there was no motivation for Bill. Well, his motivation is that the fact that his wife is taken by Pennywise, it's cliche, but th- that's motivation enough for him. That's completely gone. We, we don't even need the scene with the bike in a lot of ways with Stephen King in, in Chapter 2. It, it's really, it's not filler. It's just, I don't even know why it's there. That's not, like, his token is, is the paper... Boat. Boat. Oh, yeah. that's the so thing. The whole business with the tokens. Because we're not, we're not going to have the payoff with him riding his bike with the wife and her waking up at the end. No. We don't have that. So why is that there? And again, the whole business with the tokens is invented. They all have to go on these walking tours so that they can remember what happened, so they can know what they're up against. But the movie decides yeah. to treat it almost like a video game. They all have to find this symbolic token of their childhood and maybe that's just sort of a narrative simple device for a movie but like to, yeah. it's clear more clear in a movie than it you know uh, it would be for us in a novel when we can get inside people's heads but this is yeah. where we start knocking into things that 
rough that just I think were abjectly mistakes in the movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, also the the Henry Bowers character. I once again, I kind of felt he got shortchanged in the first one. So when he comes back in the second one, he's actually more of a threat in a lot of ways than than Pennywise actually is. Um, but because he got shortchanged in the first part. It, it's just the pull's not as strong with him. I don't know. I just kind of felt that his character got the short end of a stick. It was one of those sacrifices made. I mean, there's um, a, it's one of these sprawling narratives. There's lots of characters. We have seven members of the Losers Club. We have their immediates, and we have it itself. Someone was going to get the short end of the stick. I understand that. Yeah. I think yeah. for me, though, Machete makes a couple of mistakes in this movie that are shocking. That to me, like, okay. as a filmmaker, I've got a lot of respect from him, from Mama, everything I've seen. He's been, like, a really cogent, really, really smart horror filmmaker. There's a scene where yeah. Eddie is in the basement of the drugstore, and he sees yeah. the uh, that really sickly, grotesque creature that he'd seen in his childhood again. The and leper, yeah. The leper attacks him and vomits into his face. And they do this sound cue for uh, Angel of Morning as the vomit happens. Like this big pop music soundtrack kicks in. And it is the most staggeringly wrong-footed decision. I, have, I, I couldn't believe it. It took any terror, any grotesquery, anything. It wasn't funny. It didn't help the scene. It was so clearly a stupid decision that I can't fucking believe that it's in the movie like i was shocked at how bad yeah. and like that was uh, like that's terrible i can't believe that that's in the movie like i am yeah. shocked by that moment because that's an undercutting of your own and and the comedy in the movie is hit a little bit too hard and as much as i love bill Hader, he's part of the responsibility of that and you talked yeah. about you talked about the cameo by stephen king and the whole business with the bike. You are 100% correct. We don't need the bike. We don't need that scene. I like Stephen yeah. King and by itself as a little hello, yeah. there's Stephen King waving. We don't fucking need yeah. that scene. And it's so no. clearly superfluous. It's so clearly saying, hello, this is a movie that it actively yeah. takes you out of the movie. Like it yeah. actively takes you out of the movie. He's not bad in the scene. He's like actually by Stephen King's sta cameo standard. No, the scene itself is fine. It's fine. It's but not it kills the movie. It, like you it's just, just don't need it. You don't need that, and it's it just takes you out of the movie. Any if if the few scenes before that had got you back into it, that rattled you right out of it. That angel of Mor morning moment took me right out of the movie, and it took me a couple scenes to get back in. Yeah, but um, I'll defend for me the end. Where of the I movie got here. frustrated. Uh, and, and right now Hollywood's all the rage with this technology where you can de-age people. Right. I haven't seen Gemini Man, but that, that was its whole gimmick was this new technology. It worked a lot better in The Irishman. It, this technology looks terrible, Gary. It's not going to age like, well, no. Yeah, like here's a scene, here's a scene where we're, we're supposed to, once again, have these bonding moments with the losers as kids. And we are so distracted by some of the CGI de-aging, especially on young Finn. Yeah. Uh, His jawline has it, completely changed from the first movie, and they cannot yeah, correct it, for it. It, lo it looks so... 
And this is such an easy fix. And this is all to do with planning. Like, if you're going to do it, you're going to do it at least in two parts, both with the kids and the adults. Film the kids all at once. Yeah. Film them all, film all their scenes all at once, so you're done. Even if you don't make it chapter two, like let's say it one bombed, and you had no, fi- you know, justifiable financial reason to do it, you could put it as extra deleted scenes on the DVD. So film those scenes when they were young. Boom, that's it. Then you don't have to go back and use this technology where it, it takes you out of the movie. That was one thing that I didn't understand. Is that well, they didn't know that it was going to be a mega hit. It Chapter 1 was designed to stand on its own. If it hadn't been a mega hit, then... But you're right. The smart move would be yeah. to shoot everything at once. They didn't have that option. Yeah. So is Maya in the but room? Should we they be... could have had that option. That's why I don't understand. Like, even if they didn't have a script for It Chapter 2, they knew that they were going to use the kids again. And then, like, any... They didn't, is the thing. They did not think it was going to be that big a hit. They wanted. There was times no, where they were trying they to make were it. A, make a sequel, though. Like, no, they didn't. Lee. They like they were. They were talking about making it a PG movie. They were so nervous about it. That's the line in the sand that Muschietti drew. He's like, if we're going to make a feature film of it, it's going to be R-rated, or I don't know why we're bothering, right? Yeah. But the, that made them nervous. So it's like, okay, but it's got to be designed so that it can stand by itself. If it doesn't make the money we want it to, then at least it's it's the, the sequel is not necessary. So... The, well, it, chapter one was designed to stand on its own, and that's why they did it that way. It, I guess that, that that was such a bad decision. Like even even if it chapter one bombed financially, film those scenes, man. Like mm. film them. Yeah. Well, they didn't have a script yet. Clearly, in, you know that they were going to show up in some fashion in chapter two. It's almost impossible if you're going back. And visiting the kids, connecting it with the adults, at some point you're going to need them. Yeah. But they're going to obviously age. So well, th- that was the one of the things that as I was watching that scene going, this is so unwarranted. Where just could have, even even if they saw the box office receipts on the first weekend of It Chapter 1, they knew right then and there, oh, we're doing a sequel. Go out right then and say, look, kids, we need to film these scenes right now. But first you have to write the scenes, Lee, and then you have to book the actors. Bad bad planning decision. You have to write the scenes, and then you have to book the actors who are all busy. Like, it was just not reasonable to do it that way. I understand your frustration, but they couldn't do it that way. Going back to the actual movie that we're (laughs) reviewing, though... I will defend the ending of the movie, which is something that a lot of people take a lot of issue with and that frustratingly the movie keeps calling itself on. They keep on saying people don't like the ending of Bill's books and people don't like the ending of Stephen King's books. I hate that they feel the need to prepare us for it, that they're suddenly able to bully Pennywise to death seems very anticlimactic to people. But man, will I ever sure. take it over that like stop motion spider that we got at the end of the miniseries. And I think emotionally yeah. the movie pays off and and seeing Pennywise, you know, made helpless and terrified the way he's made so many children helpless and terrified. I think it was satisfying for me. The spectacle no. and the goofy stuff all around it, 
you know, we can take or leave. I didn't like that they revisited the doors. I thought that was stupid, but whatever. Like, yeah. they didn't hurt the movie for me. It was just like, yeah, we saw the top half of Betty Ripton last time to this time. We're going to see the bottom half. Great. But it's the same yeah. gag. It's the same gag. Uh, yeah, no. As far as using the, the kids. Spider, and then it, this is a problem with the novel. The spider doesn't work. It really, really doesn't. It's so goofy and over the top. I'd rather have just the the, the deadlights itself than, it, you know, it turning into that spider creature. Yeah. I know it's in the book, but it's just, it doesn't work for me. Um, to defend the book. Like the to defend the book, what they say is is that the thing that, that it takes its final shape as is indescribable, but that their mind interpret it to be some kind of spider thing, right? Like, it's not really yeah. adequately described because it's sort of in Lovecraftian and that it's almost indescribable. It hurts their brain to look at it. So, like, this was a compromise. Yeah. It was a spider clown, a giant spider clown, and, like, fine. You know, uh, yeah. It mostly works. Like, what did you think about the Harris Winterfire January Embers? You know, the connection between Bev and Ben. Fine, it it, it works. I mean, the romance is a little rushed. Um, fine, it didn't bother me. For me, um, that was the one it, element. It, it's elevated, honestly. Like all the actors are so strong as the losers. That's one of the things about it, chapter two, that works so well. Yeah, is that we buy a lot of the hokey stuff that they're trying to sell. For me, the one thing that the miniseries did better than the new movie is that relationship between Ben and Bev. I think it's a little bit, maybe even a lot bit cheesy, them reciting the poem to each other. Like it, but and that's not in the book but it is something that is very Stephen King like like I bide in the universe and I don't necessarily take issue with it but I just liked it I thought it was handled better between Annette O'Toole and John Ritter frankly than Jessica Chastain and this uh, New Zealand actor whose name currently escapes me they're fine in it I'm not even saying anything bad about them but it's one of yeah. those movies Jay where Ryan, Jay Ryan is the actor's name right it's one of those movies where most of the isolated scenes by themselves I think work the whole business with Mrs. Kirsch that's a great sequence. The whole business with the China, yeah. the the the, the uh, cookies, the fortune cookies in the restaurant. That's a great sequence. The scene under the bleachers with the little girl and Pennywise. Great sequence. The scene at the beginning of the movie where the, there's that hate crime. It's terrifying, but it's a great sequence. Oh yeah, it's it's a great scene. Somehow though, all of those sequences tied together don't add up to a great movie. Just a good one. The first half yep. is great. The second half is good. And that's kind of yep. where I wash up. Uh, it, it does tickle me in the right way. Any movie that wants to like do a an homage or a shout out to the greatest horror movie ever made, The Thing, oh, yes. is always going to get a smile on my face. I do love that Chinese restaurant scene. Yep. That's happened really well. And so a big shout out when they do the, when they, they literally do it almost line for line from the thing yeah. from you got to be fucking kidding me on down. That made me smile and go, yay, yeah. cheap ploy, maybe. But the whole Chinese restaurant scene is, is, is so good. Yeah. And that's when the movie does work. Yeah, it, it's, it's strange. There's, you know, the criticisms are pretty easy, but I did actually quite enjoy it. Chapter two. And it's making me sound like I didn't, which is strange. 
I, I guess I was ple- like, I, like I said, I went in with lowered expectations and was sort of pleasantly surprised by it. That I thought, okay, this is this is better than I thought it would be. Even, I agree. Like, a lot of people thought it was too long, mm. and I didn't think that at all. Like it, when it, they were finally getting to the sewers, I kind of went, "We're here already." Mm. Okay, it so earns that, its epic status. I'm enjoying that. It's an epic book, so the movies I think deserve to be epic as well. Like it yeah. earns that, I think. Um, yeah. yeah, but I get, I just to go back to the first movie is great, the second movie is good. I am I'm, I'm happy with it overall, but um, it would have been great if the second had matched the first. But I think just the choice of doing the adult story and then the kids story kind of it, it handicaps the second half of it. And again, give Pennywise yep. some more meat for the grinder. There were things that I would change, but uh, for the most part, I walk away happy. But I will stand by what I said in the introduction of the movie. In a way, I feel Dr. Sleep deserved the success that this got, and this one kind of deserved a bit more of the rebuke that it didn't get. <laughs> but I like both yeah. movies. I like both movies. Um, and if, yeah. if this brings about you know a, a new age of Stephen King adaptations, I'm very much in favor. Uh, as much as I was you know shocked by some of the mistakes made in the movie, I would not give up on Andrew Machete as a director. Anything he no, puts his no. name on, Machete, I will check that out. Machete is very very talented. Uh, uh, I think he's very very good. And could, and you know what? Kudos for him doing you know this big adaptation and spending years of his life five years a, a really strong it adaptation. Um, for those you know, like you and I who grew up on the miniseries, um, this generation has a better overall a better version of it. Yeah, um, and it, it's really really good. Um, I guess one question I have because we're I, I feel like we're nearing the end of the review. So, who did it better, uh, Scarsgard or or our original Pennywise? I think Pennywise is maybe truer to the vision of the novel as I could believe him as a lure. No one's going to look at Skarsgård and say, oh, that's a friendly clown I should go walk up and talk to, right? He actively drools whenever he's talking to children. Like, he is just an evil fucking clown. But I mainly took that as them making a conscious decision to make their Pennywise different than Tim Curry's Pennywise. I think that Skarsgård's Pennywise is scarier. I think that Tim Curry's Pennywise is truer to the source material. How's that for an answer? There you go. There you go. Good enough? Good enough. Charles Brady is new in town. You can actually talk to him? Yeah, he's nice. Real nice. The girls all like him. The teachers all respect him. Your teachers in Ohio must have been sorry to lose such a creative young man. The parents all trust him. He's utterly charming. But nobody really knows him. Like his mother. You cannot be in love with this girl, Charles. You don't know me, Tanya. But I want to. Behind their smile is a secret. Hi. Come in, Tanya. I have something for you. I don't know who you are, but I know you're not who you say you are. Behind the secret is a hunger. Does it have to be her? And behind it all is the imagination of Stephen King. Somebody help me, please! He killed one of my men. He was scared of a cat. 
So in the year 1992, a original screenplay by Stephen King was produced by uh, someone who would become a very regular collaborator with him, Mick Garris. He, he did the TV version of The Stand. He did uh, the TV version of The Shining. He did a bunch of those made-for-TV King movies. He also did a really great 80s guilty pleasure of mine called Critters 2. <laughs> The new badge. Oh, no, that's Gremlins 2. The main course, I think. Is uh, Critters 2 the main course or the second course? Doesn't matter. That sounds right. (laughs) Um, He he does sort of cheapo, usually not that great horror, middling horror movies. Here's the thing about Sleepwalkers as a script, because I'm speaking as a fan of Stephen King. Either this was the last thing he wrote before he quit drugs... Or it was the first thing he wrote after he quit drugs because <laughs> it is in fucking insane. <laughs> like it is crazy. It almost dares you to keep watching it at times. This whole like, there's a, a a mother and son couple, very literal couple, and we watch them slow dance and make out for really long, prolonged passages in the movie. <laughs> like, uh, and uh, we find out that they're these weird cat werecat creatures that have all sorts of random powers that express themselves whenever they're needed in the plot and that they essentially need to feed on virgins they suck the the energy out of the virgin girls and that keeps them powerful and immortal and you know sexy werecats i think that like it was a great opportunity for McGarris to have the Stephen King, you know, script to do, you know, is getting a budget. But I may be guessing on some level he knew that the script was insane. And in order to sort of make up for that, he just started throwing cameos and references all over the place. Here. <laughs> so uh, can we get Mark Hamill for a day? The people will really like seeing him. There's a sequence where Stephen King himself walks from, I believe, Toby Hooper to Clive Barker to um joe dante in one shot i believe i think uh there's uh there's there's cameos all over the place there's references all over the place but it's all sort of a desperate dance to try to distract distract the audience from how completely crazy and sort of nonsensical that shit this this story really is so do i think the movie is good no no i don't Am I entertained by the movie? Yes. <laughs> yes, I am. Because, just just because of that. Just because of how fucking out there it is. Just because of all the weird faces you see in it. Because of it's desperate, even though it's failing, it's trying so hard to entertain you that it becomes strangely fascinating to watch. Again, not good. This is purely for genre people who want to look at a failing genre exercise and get a couple giggles out of it but this this might have achieved what iron sky kind of failed at trying to achieve the dreaded faint praise of being so bad it's kind of good (laughs) that's where i start on sleepwalkers but i'll be very okay with you disagree (laughs) with me on this i I could be alone here that's okay (laughs) I I um I kind of love Sleepwalkers to be honest, and uh, I I agree with you that it is so crazy and the script is insane and often nonsensical. But you know, you and I, Larry, we are big movie fans. We're big horror movie fans in particular, and when you just watch a lot of movies, 
it really counts for something to say, well, I've never seen that before, and Sleepwalkers is packed with things that I've just never seen in a movie before. Um, Yeah, unlike Iron Sky, it just jam-packs it with tons of crazy stuff, but I think, um, you know, Stephen King atmosphere uh, counts a lot for me. I really like a movie when it's this intangible thing you can feel salem's lot has it pet cemetery the original 1989 one has it the dark half has it and this one does too it's that small it's that small town uh usually taking place in autumn kind of atmosphere that i really enjoy i like the 1950s aspect of the movie and the 1950s music that flows throughout it you know anytime and anytime you uh you put incest in a movie i give the movie some credit for just going there and this movie is not subtext it's very overt this charles brady is having sex with his mom and uh, his very attractive mom by the way but still his mom (laughs) and uh, but at the same time i find him and uh his love interest tanya robinson robertson i find them very charming together and their scenes are kind of cute and you almost forget for a moment that he is an incestuous werecat uh, and you know somebody gets stabbed with a corn cob. <laughs> yeah, that happens. That actually <laughs> takes place in this movie. And like that's not credible. No, no, it isn't. But have you seen it before? No, you haven't. <laughs> no. No, and you you do have to give a movie credit for just being so constantly entertaining, which Sleepwalkers absolutely is. I think it's a blast. Um, this there's a horror trope that I hate because I'm such a dog person that horror movies always will kill the dog. <laughs> you oh, know, okay. I was traumatized many times when I was a kid. Like I could watch a you know a dozen stupid frat boys get their heads squished or some dumb chick running up the stairs instead of out the front door meeting a grizzly end. But you kill a dog, that would hurt my feelings. This movie seemed to like like sort of overcompensate to the other extreme. It's just like, no, we're gonna put some cats in some bear traps. We're gonna snap some cat spines. This is gonna this is gonna be revenge for all the cat carnage that wasn't in every other <laughs> cheesy genre movie. But do I think that that's what Stephen King was thinking when he wrote it? No, I don't know what he was thinking when he wrote it. I, I also think that that main character played by Brian Krause, Charles Brady is completely schizophrenic moment for moment. There's times where we seem to be like, does he really like this girl? Is he torn? No, because when the time comes to attack her, he wolfs out and is about as shitty about it as he could possibly be. He doesn't seem interested in making it like easy on her or gentle with her or, or you know, he likes he, he likes the chase. He likes to call shit. So like, there's scenes that sort of set up an emotional core in a character that, that then proves out to not exist. And it is definitely, I mean, and this is something that a lot of movies of this era is guilty of, the late 80s and early 90s especially, this high school is populated by 25 to 30 year olds. All of the kids look way too old to be going to high school. Man, if you're going to watch horror movies, that's something you just got to get over. It's all over the place. Just accept it. That's how it's going to be. I get it. Yeah. Um, Hellboy shows up. (laughs) <laughs> in this room. Yes, he does. <laughs> and, and that's, I don't even know if that's a cameo. Like, I think that's an actual role because he's in several scenes. Ron Perlman. Yeah, he gets his arm mm-hmm. very badly broken, if I remember correctly. Um, and that's what I, I think. Th- so. I think that Mick Garris is doing this dance. He's sort of like, okay, there is an A to B sort of monster movie happening here. That's going to keep people at least minimally interested. And the teen romance, I mean, that's traditional. I mean, I think going to a graveyard is like one of the least romantic places for a picnic, but maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. 
but yeah, in order to I bet Stephen King will be into it. In order to keep us watching it, it basically becomes yeah, let's let's throw in these cameos here and there. And I've said it in the past, and I'm gonna have to say it here. I respect Stephen King so much as a writer of novels and of short stories, but having him as your screenwriter is not always a good thing. There is this character of this black cop who has his cat in the car with him. Who's like Clovis. <laughs> Clovis. Like I think he's supposed to be lovable and like adorable and we're supposed to be like really upset when he dies, but there's nothing credible about that character at all. And like when he sees the weird shit and reports it to his, you know, superiors, you believe that they don't believe him because that guy has no business being a cop and he spends all day talking to his cat and like it's I don't know what he was even going for. And that's like page to page. That's what I would talk about with the opening. Like he had his battles with, with drugs and alcohol. And uh, that kind of started messing with his work for a little while. Then he kind of cleaned himself up. And then he got in that accident. And sort of recovering from that accident, Stephen King's writing again kind of went through a phase where it got, even by King standards, pretty weird. And I can respect, you know, the, the author using the, the ebbs and flows of his life to influence his work. But this is a complete aberration in his work. It's absurd, it's kind of funny, kind of deliberately, but mostly not deliberately. It has familiar themes that we've seen in his work, but in no kind of real cohesive, focused way. It's not exactly funny, it's not exactly scary. I don't know what we're looking at here, but at the very least, it's not boring. <laughs> Yeah, we all love Stephen King and we all respect him so much because he's written some of the greatest horror stories ever written. Like I think Pet Cemetery is just a brilliant, frightening horror novel. But you know, there's another side to Stephen King. Like he likes to write really weird, crazy stuff. I mean, even there is just insane stuff in it. Um, and he wrote a crazy screenplay here. And in, in the movie's defense, I think Mick Garris, I think he knows exactly what this movie is. And I think he knew exactly what this movie needed. And he just made it really upbeat, fast-moving, entertaining, fun. And I, I do think a lot of the comedy works, so I do think it is a funny movie. I think it is a self-aware, over-the-top B-movie. Yeah. And in that respect... I really do think it succeeds. I like it a lot. Yeah, there's cringe comedy to it, too. The, the whole, you know teenage girl dancing in the lobby by herself and then the cute boy sees her the whole uncomfortable relationship the the jealous relationship that's very obvious between the mother and the girlfriend yep <laughs> it's almost curb your enthusiasm it's almost like you want to look away not because you're scared but because you're just uncomfortable <laughs> sure definitely incest should make you uncomfortable <laughs> yeah so I can't look away from the movie. Like I said, I'm, I said it at the top of the review. I don't know that it's a good movie, but I, <laughs> I have this weird affection for it just because it's just that crazy. Yeah, sometimes, I'm with you there. Sometimes crazy is enough, I guess. It's true. <laughs> good enough? Hi. Good enough. My name is Stephen King. I've written several motion pictures, but I want to tell you about a movie called Maximum Overdrive which is the first one I've directed. Wow! What in the dick is going on around here? A lot of people have directed Stephen King novels and stories, and I finally decided if you want something done right, you ought to do it yourself. 
And who was driving it? I don't know. It was my first picture as a director, and you know something? I sort of enjoyed it. What is going on? I don't know! I just wanted someone to do Stephen King right. You want a war? You got one. I just want to get the hell out of here. So come and spend some time with me and my friends at the Dixie Boy. Spend some time in the dark. Please don't let this be in the dark. I'm gonna scare the hell out of you. And that's a promise. You're gonna get us in an awful lot of trouble, man. We already in trouble. Maximum terror. Jesus coming in here. Maximum king. Maybe tomorrow will be our world again. Dino De Laurentiis presents Stephen King's Maximum Overdrive. If you were to watch the trailer for Maximum Overdrive, I don't know if you've seen it, you see yeah, Stephen King himself introducing the movie. And he has this, like, unbelievably arrogant thing where he's like, uh, a few people have taken stabs at my work in the past, but I decided for this particular story, if you want something done right, you gotta do it yourself. <laughs> now, That's not necessarily true. He just proved that wrong. Yeah. And to think of the, the names that he's throwing under the bus here. Like, think about this. Stanley Kubrick, John Carpenter, Brian De Palma... Rob Reiner, like, holy shit, dude. Are you ever setting yourself up for a fall? And I know he... Oh, yeah, because this, yeah, this, this was after Stand By Me and before Misery. That's right, right. yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> but, like, I know you've never made a movie before. I know you're excited and hopped up on, on cocaine and alcohol. I'm not talking shit about the man. He admits this himself. He was out of his mind the whole time he was doing it. But I do also think it was a personal hit to me that he also then, on top of this, centered the movie on Emilio Estevez. I, <laughs> I don't, like, I have a weird reaction with Emilio Estevez. I just, like, I don't quite understand his stardom. I get he was in The Breakfast Club. He was important to the 80s in a lot of ways. But, like... I have this thing with Emilio Estevez that he's like taking up someone else's seat. He just, his daddy was, was, was Charlie, was Martin Sheen, not Charlie Sheen. And he got a foothold into Hollywood and he was good enough to stick around, but not like, he was never AA Lister. He was always Emilio Estevez, right? He outlasted some of the other people in the Brat Pack because he did those um, mighty movies so he lasted a little bit longer than andrew mccarthy and molly ringwald and judd nelson yeah like he, he got like he got like five years on them sure i just have this thing if emilio estevez is centering a movie i tend not to connect with it with the exception of the first young guns movie which i for some reason even though it's silly i i just have an affection for it usually Usually when he plays tough guys, particularly like in this movie or in the movie from the 90s called Judgment Night, I have a hard time believing Emilio Estevez is the tough leading man. He's like five foot yeah. nothing and he looks very punchable to me. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I guess he doesn't, I, 
guess I never had any strong feelings about him either way. He doesn't bother me. I think in the Breakfast Club, he's he's good in that. What else did I like him in? I don't know. Well, that's the thing. That's the thing with everyone. Yeah. The first Mission sure. Impossible, I enjoyed seeing his head get squished. I guess. See, like the Mighty Ducks movies, I never saw. Like he did a movie called Free Jack with Mick Jagger. I've never seen that. Yeah. Um, Judgment Day, I think. I uh, I think when I saw it, the projector broke, so I saw like half of it. It wasn't very good. <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh, what else was he in? Oh, like Saint Elmo's Fire. I I don't remember. Yeah. Uh, the po- point is, is like, uh, I don't know, he's not my favorite leading man. That may not be the movie's fault, that may be on me, but a lot of it is the movie's fault. The, s- the movie's based on a short story called Trucks from one of his collections, and it's a very sort of Twilight Zone, simple idea. One day, all of the uh, vehicles suddenly come to life, and in the movie it goes on to all electronics, but in the story it's specifically these trucks that are circling this diner in the middle of nowhere, and these people are sieged by technology. It's not smart, it's basically about a group of people that get whittled down, and man, the movie is aggressive. It's got this, like, blaring ACDC soundtrack, and it's got characters who are constantly screaming at each other, and when we get tired of being locked in this Dixie Pig diner, which happens quickly, we cut away to random montages of people out there in the world just being destroyed by various forms of technology. The actual A to B to C story is kind of vague in this. It's a series of loud, obnoxious events. And uh, I, as much as I love Stephen King, cannot bring myself to defend Maximum Overdrive. It doesn't qualify as so bad it's good to me. Do you remember also in in the trailer for the movie, he points at the camera and he says, I'm going to scare the hell out of you. Nope. Remember that? I do remember that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I always remembered that. I thought, I thought, what a ballsy thing. Like, this is the trailer of the movie. <laughs> on some level, I'd always wanted to see Maximum Overdrive, but I never saw it. I guess it never showed up on HBO or anything. I never rented it. Um, I, you know, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. My expectations were just so low rock bottom <laughs> I, I thought it was going to be the worst movie I'm fascinated I, and I would I could say this about some of the other movies we're doing I'm fascinated that, that there was a time that existed that Maximum Overdrive was a movie that you could see at a multiplex yep <laughs> those times those times are long gone these well, movies don't make it that far anymore it's one of these movies that would make a cool trailer, but not a cool movie. <laughs> like yeah. like the semi-trailer with the big green goblin face crashing through stuff. That looks cool. That crazy loud ACDC soundtrack. That sounds exciting. But then you watch the movie. Look, uh, Yeardley Smith, she who voices Lisa Simpson. Thank you for Lisa Simpson. No thank you for this role in Maximum Overdrive. Literally, she does sound like nails down a chalkboard, and I really do think they're accentuating how irritating her voice is, like they're asking her to lean into the squeal, but holy shit is she hard to listen to. It was Stephen King asking her to do it, you know. Amp it up a little, amp it up. We need more. More! (laughs) I would love to know, I would love to like sit down with one of these actors and say, what was it like to work with Stephen King as 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 a director? You know, 
Stephen King. Because, you know, there's very few examples of someone who's famous for writing novels who then directed. Like, who else did that? The only other example I can think of is William Peter Blatty directed The Exorcist 3. Michael Crichton directed a couple of movies. Oh, he did? He yeah. directed... Okay. I want to say he did The Great Train Robbery and maybe another one, but I could be, I could be lying to you. Somebody check okay. IMDb right now. <laughs> but Michael Crichton did direct a couple of movies. Okay, so that's... Uh, John Grissom has been smart enough to stay away from, from this. Uh, um, I think that might... I, as far as I know, this is a very short, short list of people. No, just because you're gifted at one medium doesn't automatically assume that you're going to be well-suited to another. It doesn't mean that you won't, but... Well, your skill set as a novelist and a skill set as a film director, that's much different, I would say. I agree. There's no reason why one skill set would lend itself to the other. And it hasn't really... Although a lot of people do like The Exorcist 3. Mm-hmm. Although I don't remember much about it. Um... Yeah, no, this movie was this movie was crazy. It was a it was pretty brutal in the violence in the sense that it kind of it just like killed people who didn't necessarily had to be killed. Like there's a, a scene where there's a little league game, yep. and the little league coach gets killed by a soda machine. Who he gets closer to the soda machine to see what's why these sodas are flying out, <laughs> and I think yeah, I think it actually killed him. It killed some of the kids. Yeah, I don't know. A kid gets steamrolled or lawnmowered and <laughs> like. <laughs> Steamroll. See, these days, this movie, like, the, the kids would get killed. There's also, there's also, like, a montage of all these people who are dead on the street. They were all killed by the, I don't know, cars, like, uh, like electronics, the street sweepers. And there's, like, there's a person on the street, person on the street, and then they showed a dog. Yeah. And I was like, oh, no. Too oh. far. Too, Too far, far, Mr. King. <laughs> I don't mind all the people who are dead and the kids, but, jeez, you gotta do this to a dog? Well, I've said it before about Stephen King as far as his writing. I am a big Stephen King fan. I am like six books away from having the entire Stephen King library. <laughs> like I am, I'm, I'm, I'm hardcore in there. But I, I like his short stories. I like his novels. His screenplays are largely rocky to me. Uh, right. Like just straight telling the story through the Stephen King dialogue. Like a lot of the times, it's sort of his character dialogue that you kind of course correct for as you're reading the book. People don't really talk that way, but they talk that way in Stephen King Universe. And Stephen King Universe works right, better yeah. in a book than it does on the screen. Especially if you have mid-level actors who don't know how to deal with these like, clunky lines. Yeah, the, the woman he has for the lead in this movie, uh, I believe she gives a monologue at one point. She starts crying at one point. It's clearly not uh, no. <laughs> Meryl Streep level crying. Or the, um, the waitress who loses it and starts yelling, We made you! Right, we made you. Yes, I wrote that in my notes. I wrote these a long time ago, so I wasn't sure exactly what the context, but I did write, Waitress, we made you. Yes. She me as well. basically commits suicide by starting, she just starts screaming, We made you, and runs out into gunfire, essentially. <laughs> but, uh... but you know what? This movie is notable. It features Marla Maples in a role. Oh, there you go. Um, yeah, very few people have used her her acting skills. <laughs> you know, and here it is: Stephen King saw something in her, so good. And it features Giancarlo Esposito in his first film role. Oh yeah, I keep on seeing that guy popping up in like early or late eighties, early nineties movies, and like one scene roles. I'm like, you've been around forever. <laughs> Way to go, man! Yeah. Way to keep working. <laughs> 
so I'm a big Stephen King fan as well, and I've read almost the entire Dark. I read almost the entire Dark Tower series except for like the last, the very last book I haven't read. Oh really? That's yeah. interesting. I've just I got I made it that far. Haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> so how was the movie, the Dark Tower movie? Well, uh, you can listen to my review on the show, but the short form notes of it is that it's terrible. Okay. It's terrible, disrespectfully terrible. They tried to cram seven books into 99 minutes. You just don't oh, do no. that. You just don't do that. No. Uh, I wanted it to be good, but it wasn't. Uh, coming back to Maximum Overdrive, though, uh, here's another fun fact about this movie. They did another version of this. They did a, another version? Of Trucks. It's called Trucks, and believe it or not, it's worse. When did this come out? Uh, I'm going to say late 90s, maybe early aughts. It was made in Canada. I reviewed it for the show a couple years ago, and it's it's boring and flat in the way that I have been saying very negative things about Maximum Overdrive here, but here's what I won't say. It's not boring or flat. It doesn't just lie there. It is screaming at you the whole time. And it, I think that Maximum Overdrive does become, on occasion, accidentally kind of hilarious. If you are a connoisseur of all things bad and over the top, on that level I can recommend Maximum Overdrive. On no level at all can I recommend Trucks. So, weirdly, my my anger for this movie has been sort of <laughs> dropped a little bit because it, it's one of those Stephen King story concepts that probably works better in anthology. Like, this story probably should sustain itself for 20 minutes or a half an hour just comfortably. But once you try to give it ninety minutes, I don't know if it holds. Yeah, yeah maybe he should have. Maybe he should have done one of those anthology movies. If there was one of those, uh, Cat's Eye was yep. that one of those movies where he did like like four stories in a row. Creep Show, the original Creep Show, was five Stephen King short stories. Yeah, that's right, Creep Show. Yeah. Um, so there's a movie called Trucks. So Stephen King gave his blessing for this to happen again. <laughs> Maybe he thought like it would would make people f stop asking him questions about maximum overdrive, but I will oh, never man. stop asking questions of maximum overdrive. At the end of the day, it might just be an is what it is movie. Like, you kind of knew what you were in for. Like you said, you'd meant to watch maximum overdrive, but it came out in the late '80s and you'd never gotten around to it. So I have to assume there was a reason for that. And when you yes. watched it, that reason was confirmed. Do you regret watching it? No, I don't. I, I I believe it was better than I than I had expected. And I think on a, I know this seems kind of silly, but stunt driving, like for yeah, on that on that level, it actually is kind of cool. It gave a lot of work to a, a drivers, right. stunt drivers. So they did some good work. I'm sure they'd be happy to hear that. And if you like ACDC, it's easy. ACD. Well, I just see that as kind of like Stephen King was Stephen King, so he could. He could call Angus Young or whoever's an ACDC and say, Hey, I'm making a movie. All right, yeah. Let's do it. So I don't know what more to say about it. Like, I don't necessarily recommend it, but I mean, it, it is what it is. You've heard what we've said. You know the movie's reputation. Do you want to see uh, the world's most famous author absolutely humiliate himself? Sure. Check it out. I, but there's, guess, yeah. there's much better ways to spend your time. <laughs> Yeah, I guess as a curiosity, it's not a necessary thing. There's, there's, there are many things you should watch before this. Agreed. Is there is anything this else? The worst. 
Is this really the worst Stephen King adaptation? Did he make his worst adaptation, though? I don't know that I could say that. It depends. Like, the the Lawnmower Man is a terrible movie, but it's not even really an adaptation, like, at the end of days, is it? Uh, Like, the Tommyknockers, I find to be a pretty hard watch. Uh, The... There's some tough ones out there. The thing about this one is that it's bad, but it's it's sort of flashy and loud in its badness. I, I find that easier to watch than a movie that is tedious and boring. Uh, the Golden Years, there's a TV miniseries he did, which I would qualify as being tedious and boring. <laughs> like, a, So, um, I'm not going to say that it's the worst Stephen King adaptation, but I will say it's in the discussion. Right. He also tried to... <laughs> course correct the shining because he doesn't yeah. like Kubrick shining yeah so he made his own like two night miniseries which is far inferior yeah to that, that's being kind that's being kind right. I believe that shining was reviewed on the very same episode that I reviewed trucks <laughs> if I concentrate hard enough I can move things other people can do it I read about it Power. No! If you don't have a date for the prom next Friday, would you like to go with me? I've been invited to the prom. Well, you're not going. Why? Why Tommy ask her to the prom? What for? It's been a while since we've talked about Stephen King, <laughs> so let's talk about Stephen King. Okay. Um, Carrie is, of course, his first published novel, and uh, since there's a sub-theme about, uh, you know, women coming to the rescue, <laughs> uh, he wrote the first third of the book basically setting up Carrie's backstory and the story of her humiliation in the locker room, all of the girls throwing tampons at her and telling her to plug it up really classy stuff and he had this sort of arguably weak writer moment where he decided you know like this is too dark and this is outside my wheelhouse what do i know about the pains and qualms of a a teenage girl right so he threw it in the garbage his wife fished it out of the garbage and she read it and she agreed that it's really dark and really ugly but that he should probably see it through and he did and it got published, and it got noticed, and Brian De Palma made this that. movie. Yeah, so his first big break was initially uh, an abandoned project. So a don't abandon projects, and b you know sometimes it pays to listen to the wife. You know, yeah. I can relate to that sort <laughs> of idea of thinking. You know, uh, write what you know, and what what does you know uh, a thirty year old man know about a, a tormented sixteen year old girl? Probably not a lot, <laughs> right? 
But I think what makes Carrie work is that uh, we can all identify with the underdog, you know, overcoming some terrible obstacles. And we spend most of the time, the first half of the movie, just seeing all of these obstacles that are in front of Carrie. <laughs> she's a plain, at least in the, in the book, she's a very plain uh, girl who has a bit of an attitude and chip on her shoulder as forcefully bred into her by her religious zealot mother. She doesn't get along at home and she doesn't get along at school and she's just generally kind of miserable. We pity her and we understand where she's coming from but everybody else is just sort of annoyed by her or you know cruel to her and we want Carrie to have a win <laughs> and I guess the story is Carrie getting a win at the cost of everything <laughs> you know herself anything that was good yeah. in her her life her environment but again the environment that we're shown is just so brutal that it as dark as the movie gets it still somehow feels like Carrie wins in the end I love De Palma as a technical filmmaker. I think, you know, I've talked about this movie in the past, that from a, from a technical filmmaking standpoint, it right out of the gate just displays that De Palma is a absolutely worthy director to watch. This combination of that Stephen King story, Sissy Spacek, who the only problem I have with her entire performance in the movie is that she's too pretty in a lot of ways to play Carrie to me. <laughs> I didn't really see the transformation. I always thought Carrie was kind of pretty, you know, in the movie. Mm -hmm. She has an inherent sweetness because she's performed by Sissy Spacek. Um, yeah. But that's, 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 that's as close to a criticism as I can give to the performance. And I don't have much of criticism to the execution. So what can we bring new to this conversation about Carrie, Mick? <laughs> What's your spin on this 1976, I would call classic horror movie? <laughs> Jeez, I don't know if I have anything new to say, um, but, you know, the the mean girl dynamic is just, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just a, a really, really good portrayal. I mean, you can see that happening in, in every school and every group of friends, you know, there's, it's horrifying, actually. <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's good. We see a lot of themes that King's going to be mining throughout his career are, you know, almost fully formed in this one of his first novels. The idea of a, a, a villainous character who uses their religious faith as uh, an excuse to do their bad things, you know. Everything bad and everything good that dictates their lives can somehow be justified or vindicated in the Bible. Um, Carrie's mother is horrifying in her depiction and I don't know how quote real world it is but it is certainly a memorable <laughs> memorable character um, she's killing her child with love yeah terrible horrifying love <laughs> it's yeah and I mean she is way over the top but it works for her fanaticism. Yeah, Piper Laurie got you know nominated for an Oscar for this role, and I totally understand it. Oscars love psycho roles, right? And I agree with you that there's a percentage of theatricality to that performance that is like several levels higher than anyone else is playing in the movie. But look at that character. I mean, how else do you you know approach that? Yeah, she's a raving lunatic, and she'll say, like, insane things with a big cartoon smile on her face. Mm 
I watched yeah. the documentary on the making of, and uh, Piper Laurie talked about her take on her death scene when she's basically being crucified and stabbed by all these kitchen in, in implements. She talked to De Palma about it and said, what if she really loves it? What if she loves dying? What if this suffrage and transition is just like all that she'd hoped it could ever be? And yeah. If you watch it with that in mind, it, it becomes almost an orgasmic scene as she's bleeding out in front of her daughter, which is just another layer of Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to correct something from a previous review. Uh, I talked to you about this. Betty Buckley plays a character named Miss Collins. In this and she's the one character in the movie who actually is decent to carry and in our previous review when I talked about this movie with Mr. Beckman I kept on referring to her as Miss Snell and that is incorrect she's Miss Collins and it drives me crazy that I got it wrong <laughs> it's also interesting because uh, I, I think it's an interesting inclusion in the movie that this one character who is genuinely sympathetic, genuinely sweet, genuinely good-hearted to Carrie is personally killed by Carrie. Like, Carrie makes the decision to kill her. Everybody in that gym, by their presence there, is guilty in her mind. So she kills even the innocent. And we see her make that choice. And it, it it muddies the water for us a little bit. I mean, yes, a lot of innocent high school kids are dying. We shouldn't be cheering for her at this point. But why Miss Collins? That moment always really stings. And it adds to the horror of the moment, you know? Yeah, well, well the greater the trust, the greater the betrayal. Yeah. You know, I mean, she thought she had made a friend. She thought she was, um, you know loved by another a grown woman in her life and then when she felt betrayed you're off the book yeah that's it that's it uh and it's another classic case of no good deed goes unpunished one of the girls sue snell feels genuinely terrible about her treatment of carrie so she deserves to not go to prom and she decides to take her licks and over and above that, she decides to set Carrie up with this boy who clearly is infatuated with her as sort of a favor and a gesture to Carrie. She was so horrible to her, maybe she can at least give Carrie this one good night, this one memorable occasion where, you know, her life wasn't a big shit stain. <laughs> and again, for their pains and for their good choices, um, she's traumatized for the rest of her life, for sure. <laughs> and uh, he's pretty damn dead. <laughs> yeah. So, like, uh, it, it's an interesting, like, we can't help but cheer for Carrie. I mean, I, speaking, maybe I should just speak for myself, but speaking as, a you know, someone who was bullied really badly, both mentally and physically, for a good portion of his childhood, there is undeniably some kind of rush that you get of seeing the tables turned. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, in the story here, it's ignited by her puberty, her burgeoning womanhood kind of triggers her, her psychic powers to another level. We know from the novel, they don't get into it in the, in, the, in the movie, that throughout her childhood, weird things have happened. But clearly, with you know her becoming an adult, Things have gone up another level. Uh, how do you feel yeah. about the power of femininity, you know, sort of being a, a trigger point for supernatural powers? Is that cool or condescending? Kick 
guess. <laughs> I wish I had some. <laughs> We're going to meet a lot of women, actually, in this list with superpowers. <laughs> so it'll be interesting as we go through it. <laughs> but I, I think that I'm more on the side of cheering for Carrie at the end, even though she does kill a gymnasium full of people yeah. because she dies at the end. Yeah. She doesn't walk away whistling. She doesn't move to another town and start over. You know, she's all in and that's it. Yeah. So um, that makes it easier. Well, and I guess we, having read the book, we, we have a, a little bit more of a foundation. This is a girl who's like trapped in a closet for hours a day. Staring at a creepy as shit crucifix of Jesus. Begging to be forgiven for sins that she hasn't committed. <laughs> you know, uh, she's just been abused and put upon for so long. You can't help but see it turn around and, and, and like cheer for her a little bit. But it just, even when she wins, she loses, right? She, her mother tells her when she goes to that prom, it's all going to be an elaborate joke and everyone's going to laugh at her. And that proves to be true. So she goes home weeping and bloodied and humiliated to seek comfort from her mother. And her mother promptly stabs her in the back, literally stabs her in the back. So yeah, she's going to take out mom, she's going to take out herself, she's going to take out the neighborhood. In the book, she basically takes out the town. Yeah. Be nice to that odd kid out. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That image of her walking home all bloody in her dress and everything, that's, that stays with me, that... <laughs> just that image of her it's just so chilling yeah a lot of the evil in the movie and again discounting carrie i think if she's evil she was made evil but uh the main bully chris in this movie she is fucking awful and as discussed carrie's mom is fucking awful at least in this movie the the evil is distributed <laughs> pretty uh pretty substantially across the, the female characters. They didn't feel the need to make the men the big bad in this case. Part of the problem right. there, too, is John Travolta. I think his character was, as written, is much more hostile, is much more macho, but Travolta just was uncomfortable. Like, apparently he didn't even want to slap the actress, even pretend to slap her. He was so upset at the idea that he could accidentally hurt someone that he wasn't very convincing at playing a bully. Uh, he actually sort of comes off as a guy being led along. The, this this blonde woman is able to talk him into killing a pig and draining its blood into a bucket just because he thinks that she's hot. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah she's just so <laughs> awful. It kind of reminds me, there's a, this is a little bit off tangent, but there's an anthology movie called Trick or Treat, where these, these trick-or-treaters are really, really tormenting a, another girl, sort of Carrie figure, and the worst of them, the little girl, is dressed like an angel. <laughs> there's this, this something about this dichotomy of like a really, really pretty face, just with evil behind it. <laughs> Carrie Mulligan plays a character like that in Inside Lewin Davis. She's very beautiful and she sings very sweetly, but whenever she's off stage, everything that comes out of her mouth is just awful. <laughs> I, I really find those characters interesting because they look like the perfect princess bride, kind of ideal. But yeah. underneath that is just this terrible, terrible death. Of, 
So yeah, all these years later, Carrie still flips my my bully switch. I still enjoy seeing all of these people punished, and I know that maybe I shouldn't, but it's an immortal horror movie. I mean, again, it's a classic movie, and classic movies are hard to review, because if you haven't seen Carrie, I don't know what I can tell you that will convince you that you should, but you definitely should. Um, And even though it's one of King's first novels, it's, it's... very interesting um and as much as there's stuff in the novel that uh, i think like i said he revisits again there's also stuff that's kind of unique like again the perspective almost exclusively being told from a teenage girl and the use of uh, like journal entries and uh news articles and almost a it's a weird thing to say but it's almost like a dossier or a quote found footage approach to the story in a novel which I also kind of found interesting. Mm. So I don't remember the novel well enough. It yeah. So many years ago. It's worth revisiting. Like I said, it's a very 70s book, but it's also one of his quick reads. It's by King's standards, practically a short story. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I guess I've gushed about Carrie again. Is there anything else that you want to say? I feel like I kind of rolled over you a little there. Uh, no, not at all. Um, I'm not a De Palma expert. Or anything like that. If I had two eensy, tiny little complaints about the movie, it would be um, the scene with the um, when the teacher brings Carrie into the principal's office and he keeps calling her Cassie. Yes. And and Carrie's getting upset. He does it three times in a row and is corrected three times in a row. And that is just really you're doing it on purpose, buddy. Like you are deliberately antagonizing this girl at that point. There's no way anybody is that absent minded that they would, you know, do that three times in a row. So that kind of bothered me a little bit. I don't know. And, I, uh, the level of dispassion that I think I've witnessed within, like, the education system. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Perhaps a case could be made. <laughs> okay. Uh, and the second one was um, the scene in the prom uh, where Carrie and the guy um, are dancing, and it's the twirly scene. Right. I just thought it was a little bit too twirly. <laughs> too many times around. At the risk of airing an unpopular opinion, I know that we need it because we have to see Carrie in bliss. We have to see her absolutely happy before everything turns to shit. But that scene does almost feel like it's in slow motion. They really agonize over every inch of it, uh, both the good and the bad. So, uh, yeah, I see where you're coming from there. It is kind of a cool shot, but uh, maybe incongruous with <laughs> the story being told. Or just too long. Or just too long. Yeah. Damn that, it. That's all. That's it. No. <laughs> Watch Carrie, damn it. I don't suppose they uh, told you anything in Denver about the tragedy we had up here during the winter of 1970. I hired a man named Charles Grady as the winter caretaker. From what I've been told, I mean, he seemed like a completely normal individual. But at some point during the winter, he must have suffered some kind of a complete mental breakdown. He ran amok and uh, killed his family for the next. Well, you can rest assured, Mr. Ullman, that's not going to happen with me. <laughs> that's right. Mom, they really want to go and live in that hotel for the winter. Sure I do. It'll be lots of fun. The only thing that can get a bit trying up here during the winter uh, the tremendous sense of isolation. Is there something bad here? I fear you will 
have to deal with this matter in the harshest possible way. What did you do? I killed you with Danny. You did this to Did you? I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. read the novel of The Shining, uh, we have the story of a recovering alcoholic, Jack Torrance, and yeah. his wife, Wendy, who in the novel is a very strong, very beautiful, blonde, buxom sort of heroine. And totally Stephen King's sexual fantasy, which I think is one thing that Sort of the, the perfect, beautiful, supportive yeah. wife. Yeah. And uh, Daniel, his troubled son, who yeah. uh, has some supernatural powers. Yeah. When they come to live at the... Uh, seasonally abandoned Overlook Hotel, yeah. the supernatural ability that is large in his son Danny and sort of a just a little bit inside himself sort of ignites the evil spirits of the mm. Overlook Hotel and Jack Torrance, specifically as played by uh, Jack Nicholson, yes. goes mad. Yes. That basic setup and those characters are shared by the movie. Yeah. But that is about all. Cooper it's it's Jettison. it's it's definitely an uh, I, I had mentioned this earlier. It's more an homage than it is an adaptation. The characters the and the setting are kept. Yeah, and that is about all. The basic structure, even I would argue, of the Descent of Madness. Yeah, it's like it, it's almost completely abandoned. He was interested. I think at the time he felt like horror movies were big business. Yeah, and we were getting a, like. loudly lauded the exorcist and the omen were huge and sort of considered films and he being a sort of competitive motherfucker you know said well i am stanley kubrick so i'm going to make the first truly epic horror movie yeah and he succeeds in making a truly epic and scary horror movie yeah while failing at adapting the story of the shining one thing that is utterly intriguing about this and kubrick was really more interested in realistic human horror, not he was not keen on the supernatural. You can make an argument that, and that in his films, that all these things are in the people's minds and not actually having to happening to them. It's not actually supernatural spectral entities that are messing with them. You could basically argue that it's almost a mass hypnosis that hits them, and it's also to do obviously with hallucinations due to alcoholism and other sort of ugly things that has happened both not only to the father but to the family itself up until the point that the spirit unlocks the freezer I know that's the only thing that sort of gets in the way of that I think probably Kubrick relented at that point that you could make the argument in the film again not at all in the book yeah. In the book, we have hedge animals, not a hedge maze. Yeah. And when you turn your back to the hedge mammals, animals, they'll move. And uh, there's a lot more into the history of the hotel and the yeah. descent of yeah. the character. Yeah. I don't know if it was because the uh, very deliberate sort of chaos that Kubrick created in the production of Shining. Mm-hmm. He practically drove Shelley Duvall insane. She was literally losing hair and having mm-hmm. panic attacks because he was so shitty to her. Mm-hmm. I don't respect that approach to work, but the results do show up on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, no, no, but Jack Nicholson, sorry. In the movie, to me, he seems crazy at the interview. 
Yeah. He seems crazy. Either, in there's, the definitely, car, there's definitely there's definitely danger and and edginess to them, which is not the book. The, yeah. No, the the, no, the interpretation has, of characters are vastly different. Yeah. He definitely has an edge to him. He definitely yeah. has his demons in the book. Like the backstory of him accidentally breaking down his arm, which is yeah. covered, yeah. is taken from the book as well. Uh, he does have a lot of rage that he used to drown in alcohol, and now yeah. he's having to pour inward. Yeah. Uh, and he, he, he has got potential, but mm-hmm. he has got way more of a poker face and is way more of a genuinely loving, caring person mm-hmm. that we see get taken in by this hotel. Mm-hmm. Then the character is played very memorably by Jack Nicholson, who yeah. shows up. He's a crazy man when he gets there, and when he gets there, he gets much crazier. Yeah. No, it's a less Nich- Nicholson is way art. stronger in the latter half of this movie than the first part, just from the fact that it's you know it's hard for Jack to be quote unquote I don't want to say normal, but there's such a darkness and ed- edginess to them right off the bat of this movie that that journey is not as strong as it is in the book. Um, Kubrick's he, not interested in the supernatural and yeah. more. Interestingly, he seems to be not that interested in, in the psychological uh, descent. He is interested in scaring the shit out of the audience. And I think I think he's interested. Well, what he's interested in is that the that the evil that men do. Mm. You know what can drive a person that that would be wanting at first sort of somewhat deeply annoyed and then wanting to end in a rather horrific way. Uh, There's nothing. How does that man get to that? There's He's nothing worse not than interested a man. in the ghosts at all, and I find that, that that's what one of the things that make this movie memorable is he's very much interested in the psychological breakdown of this character. But he, it, it's not deeply explored. He goes, like I said, from crazy to very crazy, as opposed to a guy who's holding it together to a guy who's fallen apart. Yeah, that would be my argument. But what I'm saying, as far as his goal, I think is primarily to scare us. Mm-hmm. Is the Steadicam was a relatively new tool. At it's this one of the first point. movies to incorporate the Steadicam, uh, especially to this degree. It, it yeah. was all over the place in it, and there's something about the space that he allows to the shots, the mm-hmm. space that he keeps between Wendy and Jack throughout the movie, yeah. and the fact that there's a weird expectancy. I almost always feel like someone either is about to enter the room or someone has just left. Mm-hmm. Whenever we establish anywhere, mm-hmm. you're never allowed to relax. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, that's more the filmmaking than yeah. the storytelling. It is one of the most hypnotic movies ever made. The the pace of this movie, the editing of this movie, along accompanied by the music, it it, it just comes at you in long overlapping waves in a lot of ways. And it just starts to really creep at you which is one of the things that is so good about this movie um but yeah it is when getting back to it's very different from the book in a lot of ways and we'll keep on coming back to this yeah um Um, if you're a purist if you love stephen king i understand why you don't like this movie i guess yeah but i don't think you could argue that it's not absolutely terrifying yeah some of the shots in this movie are, are simply breathtaking um, I, I know I know we're jumping ships here a little bit. Uh, I was just sort of thinking about because Kubrick was known as a perfectionist. That's one of the things that he was notoriously known about. He was not uncommon for him to do like 219 takes, uh, and an actor would be utterly exhausted. Well, and like they spent some serious fucking money. Mm-hmm. The exterior of the Overlook Hotel was built on a sound stage. I know. <laughs> and covered in this terrible salty foam, apparently, that was yeah. eating up people's clothes and whatnot. Yeah. 
It wasn't a genuine winter landscape. There was artifice that the actors had to work around all the time. Yeah. But it feels so genuine and so scary. Yeah. The you, you know I like a lot of Kubrick's films, but yes. I have to say like I don't like how he gets there. Yeah. There's a famous story about Scatman Crothers who uh, plays a man who befriends Danny because yeah. they share this shining, this psychic yeah. ability. Yeah. The scene where the two of them have ice cream together and he tells Danny about his ability to shine yeah. and to stay away from the specific room yeah. and you know basically tells him that he has this special little secret flashlight. Uh, they did take after take after take to the point where like 60 or 70 takes in, Scatman Crothers was in tears. Mm -hmm. But Danny Lloyd, the uh, kid, mm -hmm. was a fucking rock. <laughs> take after take after take, he just kept giving it in yeah. that sort of repetitive little kid way. Like, mm -hmm. what would drive an adult crazy? This kid really locked into. The little kid in The Shining is very good. Mm -hmm. And the wrong casting of that child could have undone this movie. Yeah. He is asked to have a conversation with his imaginary friend in a bathroom mirror. And it is fucking chilling. And yeah. it's just a child actor. Here's the thing that, that's strongly hinted at in the book that's not in the movie. It isn't... And it's Tony, right? His Tony, quote, his friend. Yeah. Isn't that essentially him, just more in the future, that he is communicating with himself in the it's future? It's a projected sort of version of his older, more mature self. Yeah. A version that only exists deep in his brain that would be able to handle the situation. Yeah talks to him because he's too young to be able to handle the situation yeah i love how it's realized in the book too as uh, he sees like a little boy that's way way down the street yeah who's sort of yelling at him he can't really like quite yeah. see him but he knows he's there and they communicate to each other yeah it's very creepy all of his this little kid shining stuff how his brain is sort of shaping this ability is really better better explored in the book as you would expect but made very frightening in The Shining and yeah. in, in the film. So, As good as Nicholson, Nicholson is in the half of the movie, and I agree, Danny Lloyd is awesome in this movie, and if they would have botched up that casting, the movie would have failed completely. Yeah. But And this is controversial because she got a lot of heat when this movie first came out as um, just utterly awful, and I think they missed it because I think what Kubert was doing with the casting of Shelley Duvall, who I think is very good in this movie, is... I can totally believe uh, having this sort of almost deeply, like, it, she looked like she could be blown over by just a simple blow of the kiss or something, and mm -hmm. a, a been, been to the, the ringer at least three times, is the cat, you just, you believe the fact that this kind of waif, this kind of woman would be, would be attracted to a, a person who is a wife abuser and a child abuser in a lot of ways. It, the casting is so dead on for what Kubrick was going for that I could not believe, you know, a very strong-willed, blonde, blue-eyed, um, you know, almost all-American girl, which is how she's almost described in The Shine. I mean, she's got some damage to her as well. But I really do think that that, that sort of... You like that change? I do like that change a lot. I um, think that uh, a lot of people would disagree in that... It's so different from the book. She's helpless because of the situation. Yeah. So it's kind of unfortunate that on top of being helpless because of the situation, yeah. she's kind of useless actively. Like, mm -hmm. once she fully realizes how crazy her husband is, like, 
she just finds different places for her and her son to hide. That's basically what she's got. Yeah. But in the book, she fights back. She gives as good as she gets. Jack yeah. takes some serious hits, you know. Yeah. And uh, I, I think I would have liked to see more backbone. And I really hate the whole idea that Kubrick felt that he needed to be shitty to Shelley Duvall and make her feel like unappreciated and and really make her almost want to quit being an actress. Mm-hmm. You know, she would would have gone from being thrilled to being part of the Stanley Kubrick film to realizing that. She committed herself to months and months of psychological abuse at the hands of a fucking sociopath mm-hmm. who just happens to be one of the greatest living filmmakers. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's necessary to do that. I think that if he gave direction, if he was able to communicate like a human being, he could tell Shelley Duvall what he wanted and she could have brought that for him. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, understand, I, I don't necessarily always think you need 900 takes to get it right. Yeah. But the argument made against this is you spend so much money building the set, casting your movie, getting to the point where you're going to shoot. So once you're there, shoot till you get it right. Yeah. I would argue if it takes 60 or 70 takes to get it right, that maybe the director's doing something wrong. Mm. <laughs> but I'm not Kubrick, and I'm not here to wag my finger at Kubrick, because we're talking about one of the best horror movies ever made right now. <laughs> that scene with the doctor and early on in the movie, I think is so good, and there's, once again, so many levels to that performance and how that scene plays out. Shows you how good Shelley Duvall is. With the whole... She's making excuses for her husband. We've seen this scene in real life probably numerous times before. But as she's trying to make excuses for her, the ugliness of what her husband can do, yeah. that scene right then and there is so well made, so well done by everyone involved, including Kubrick. And I think she was unfairly maligned. Like, she got a Razzie Award. This movie. this movie was not loved when it was released no. by the way it's yeah. got its reputation as a classic and I think it, it is I think it deserves it but you know much like the thing when we talk about the thing it took time yeah. for people to realize what they had here yeah. I think that they you know people who loved the book were pissed off that they didn't adapt the book and people who were sort of Kubrick snobs sort of thought the material was beneath him mm-hmm. you know no um, I love the th- I mean, it's both in the book and in the theme, and I think explored a lot better in the movie, I will say, is that the ugliness and evilness of addiction. In, in, the, in this specific tale, it is alcohol and alcoholism that uh, helps destroy this tragic man in a lot of ways. There, There is some good to this person, and it's quickly washed away by the fact that... The book is about alcoholism. Yeah. That is the subject of the book, yeah. more so than it is about a haunted hotel. Yeah. I would make that argument. Yeah. Uh, it's something that's touched on in the movie, and uh, the great sort of spiritual catalyst is still the, the you know, the house bartender. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, you know, he goes from sitting at the empty bar, looking at the, uh, you know, the empty shelves, wishing he could have a drink. Mm-hmm. to you know one night walking in there and there's the full bar and a bartender waiting for him yeah. and instead of questioning it just embracing it yeah. because he's so relieved to finally be able to have that drink yeah. and not think about how fucked up everything is yeah. again that's just not in the movie yeah. the movie's there to scare you and when it scares you it scares you well burned into my retinas since I was a child Danny Torrance riding his three wheeler ah, circles and uh, rounding that corner to see the two murdered twins. Yeah. 
Come play with us, Danny. Yeah. Forever and, and ever. ever. If yeah. that doesn't scare you, I think maybe there's something wrong with you. Yeah. Uh, Kubrick's propensity to have a lot of nudity in his films shines through here. Mm -hmm. uh, in a sequence that does happen in the book, similarly, uh, Kubrick goes into a room that we know has got a bad atmosphere to it mm -hmm. and sees initially a quite attractive naked woman mm -hmm. in the bathtub and gets up and approaches him and they embrace and start you know, fooling around mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden she transforms into this old, ugly, bloated corpse. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's more filled out in the book, but as an isolated scene or moment in the movie, mm -hmm. it is fucking terrifying. Mm -hmm. And that is compounded by when he next sees his wife. Mm -hmm. We don't know how he got out of that situation or what happened. The fact that he doesn't register that anything happened and he just says that was an empty room. The fact that he won't have the conversation that he thought like conclusively there is something evil in the hotel yeah. sort of solidifies that he is no longer the projector. Yeah, he is now the threat. Yeah, yeah, that's scary. Yep. Yes, yes. There's lots of things scary about this movie. Um, one question I'm going to ask you is, why do you think Kubrick killed off uh, Dick Halloran? Well, he didn't give a shit about the source material, mm -hmm. and I think that he might have been right in that someone needed to die. In the here's some spoilers for the novel. Mm -hmm. Uh, Halloran saves the day in the novel. The only yeah. person to die is Jack. Mm -hmm. And the hotel, ex it's a giant explosion ending that Stephen yeah. King seems to like to do in a lot of his books. Mm -hmm. I think that the climax of the movie might be arguably a more interesting end than Stephen King came up with. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting because uh, before I read the book, I thought it was just a Stephen King thing that people would travel great distances to be killed in his stories. It's happened in other movies, Pet mm -hmm. Cemetery being one that comes to mind, and it happens in more than a few. You know, he brings in an outside source who could be a potential savior, only to kill them off almost instantly. Yeah, but that's not the case here with Halloran. In the book, he saves the day. He gets badly mauled by these like supernatural head creatures and the ghosts fuck with his abilities and his shining power and yeah. he's changed by his experience at the Overlook but he yeah. comes out of it alive and he gets in the snowplow and he takes them down the mountain mm -hmm. uh, that's the how they get out mm -hmm. um, it's not really explained how they get out at the end of this movie the movie just kind of stops the threat of him being gone I guess they're safe well, they crawl into the whatever snow cat. And, the, and they go down the path yeah that's so that we, we do see them escape in the movie but the hedge maze was a really good device yeah. and again like uh, an invention A I don't know how they could have realized those hedge monsters in the 80s yeah. and they B could. I think it's more psychologically interesting him literally chasing his son into this labyrinth and being outwitted by this because of his own madness yeah. and his lack of you know forward thinking mm -hmm. he is outsmarted by this eight-year-old mm -hmm. uh, arguably stronger you know in the movie he's chasing them with an axe in the book he's chasing them with a mallet mm -hmm. uh, like a sporting croquet type mallet mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you know punching holes in the wall and just sort of screaming in a sort of repetitive Stephen King way there are things that I like better in the book and there are things that I like better in the movie so mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of mixed up in my mind mm -hmm. people obsess over this movie the way people obsess over movies like Jaws you know yeah. <laughs> there's lots of layers to this movie yeah. like I said there's lots of you know lots of things going on underneath even the, the plot of this movie um, the one thing I'm sort of confused about I mean I know in the novel the dog faced boy 
is used far greater in the book than he is in the movie. He's almost like a, an afternote in a lot of ways. He has that really weird scene towards the end where he's engaged in some sort of fellatio with yeah. another ghost. Again, if you read the book, you get a whole backstory about this guy yeah. who's being sort of basically psychologically tortured by all these terrible people and gangsters that treat yeah. him basically like a dog and yeah. as a toy and yeah. uh, as a degenerate. And you just get an image of like these two guys basically wearing furry suits, going one's going down on the other one, right? Yeah. And the, you don't, they don't at, even try to make sense of it. Yeah. And because of that, it's kind of scary because yeah. what the fuck is that now? Yeah. <laughs> right? Random but comment time. If yeah. you've read the book, you can fill it out. But yeah. when you're just watching the movie, it's scary, but it's inexplicable. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you asked me forever ago, and I didn't properly answer why he killed Halloran. Yeah. Because he wanted to scare the audience. Yeah. And the audience expected him to show up and save the day. Yeah. And he showed up and got a fucking axe in his heart. Yeah. And his shining did not help him out of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. Anyways, The Shining is one of the most scariest films of all time. It is. Like, if you were to do a top ten, top ten horror films of all time, it's on The Shining list. would definitely be there. In fact, a couple films from this list would be on there. Yeah. Um, I think there are so many great adult ideas talked about in this movie. And once again, it, I, I, I'm, I'm talking about thinking of Kubrick's film that explored the, the sheer evil that men do. It's like what evil can do and manipulates weak men is something that Kubrick is very interested in. He's also very, very terrified of the financially elite. Uh, That's a common theme in his movies, that he finds them both paranoid and scary. We see it in Eyes Wide Shut. We see it in Barry Lyndon. We we see it to a lesser extent in even Spartacus that he's very wary of the sort of economically elite and socially elite those those masses and what they can do to I wouldn't say weaker men or weaker people but they, they cause a lot of evil and damage to the so called lower class if you will that's that's a common theme and here I mean they're literally evil specter the, this sort of paranoid yeah. upper upper cra- upper crust I love the fact that Jack has this weird sense of deja vu that you know he's been here before and he's never left he's part of this soul-sucking society in a lot of ways. Well, and the in the book, it's not really clear in the movie. They they can control him because of his alcoholism. They yeah. can sort of take advantage of this weakness and bend him to their will. Yeah. But the real goal is Danny. Yeah, if that's the get, book. If, if he kills Danny and Danny becomes one of those par- spirits of yeah. the Overlook Hotel, yeah. basically anyone who dies there is sort of yeah. enveloped into the overlook it becomes a much more powerful much more evil place yeah and I think that's the end game of the spirits in the book yeah in the movie the end game of the spirits is they're more interested spirit. in Jack yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's one a huge difference where the book the book is really about Danny and in the movie the movie is really about Jack well I think the book is about Jack too but uh, to an extent um yeah, his his descent is much more of an arc, as yeah. we discussed earlier on. Yeah, um, and also it's something to do. It's really disturbing in the book, and it's touched on in the movie as well. About the psychology of a man who, when he hits bottom, his impetus is to not, you know, check himself into a hospital. Mm-hmm. It's not to drink himself into oblivion. It's not even to kill himself. He goes to, I'm going to destroy my family. Yeah, I will kill my wife and I will kill my son. Mm-hmm. 
I, I don't completely identify with it, but I know that there's an element of sometimes you can love somebody, but they also drive you fucking crazy. Yeah. Where you have that swing between this is the greatest person in the world to can you shut up for two fucking seconds? And that's when... And you can swing yeah. very widely, very quickly. Yeah. Same thing with little kids. You just love him. He's so adorable and precocious and charming. And then he fucking spills ink on your manuscript and you just lose your mind. How could you do something like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but... The idea of a father, the protector father figure for, yeah. you know, you know <laughs> words from the patriarchy, but that sort of thing, the betrayal of that mm -hmm. uh, is horrifying mm -hmm. and will always be horrifying. Yeah. It's the fact, something that's, that's terrifying to me, uh, thinking about addicts, is the fact that they continuously poison their own bodies and knowingly do so and how it's and how that it goes beyond just poisoning them it starts to poison the people around them yeah. i think is done so well by stanley kubrick and it's something that a lot of people can identify with it because it is a horrific thing yeah. uh and you just that, that that he hit that note quite well i mean the book does the same thing but i i I've, i don't know any other horror movie that comes close to examining that subject as a horror film yeah. I think that in session 9 would be like a good companion piece in a lot of ways because they do the structure is somewhat similar we're and, all around a building that's yeah. very haunted that sort of feeds off of misery yeah and you know a, a family is deeply affected by the evil that percolates in both stories yeah. it's yeah no The Shining is just and it's operatic as well I love the operatic nature of it it's yeah it's it will so be there it's there the shining will always be there much like a lot of the kubrick catalog yeah but it is one of like the truly truly great the shots are so good in that movie the shot with the steady camera i just love the fact that he superimposed two things to create that maze shot yeah both of the apartment buildings and that's actually kubrick walking across with another person the miniature it's not actually um shelly and um the actor Danny Lloyd. Lloyd. Yeah. It's actually him. It's a rooftop in New York, believe it or not, and they superimposed the maze over it. It's a very hyperly specific movie in how it is shot and designed to creep you out. Yeah. And as a as a sort of haunted house spoof fest, as a get under skin movie, yeah. you can't do better. But make sure you check out the book because the book is also it's fantastic. Good. It's by far the, the most not adult bad. film I think on this list. Like it, it's it's praise on your nerves but it's also ultimately challenging as an adult I remember the first time I saw this movie I saw this movie with Neil Hendry and I knew some things I, I couldn't fully grasp some of the things that this movie was talking about at the time but it still utterly creeped, creeped me out especially obviously the red rum part because I didn't I remember I, I didn't see it coming yeah. I'd forgotten about it and then red rum red rum timeless was a kid, there was a place. A dark place. They closed it down and let it rot. But the things that lived there... They come back. Not many ride the bus this far north. You're running away from something? <gasps> I'm running away from myself, I guess. 
Doctor Sleep is an ambitious number, and as I alluded to in the introduction when we were talking about it, it is both a sequel to the Stanley Kubrick adaptation of The Shining, which is, much as it's a great horror movie, is not a great adaptation of the novel, but Doctor Sleep is the novel sequel of The Shining that Stephen King wrote, and stuff that is in the novel can't really be in the movie because if we're reliant on Kubrick's work, you know, the overlook still exists. So instead of the climax climax of the movie happening in the ruins of the Overlook Hotel, we get to literally go back and get inside the Overlook again and really relive The Shining in a in, you know, a fun way. It's funny, it's like the second big scale blockbuster movie that has like an entire sequence set inside the Overlook Hotel. Ready Player One recreated the Overlook Hotel like this already. <laughs> it's like, it, people are obsessed with The Shining. So I think it was a really brilliant move in order to not... He, he couldn't ignore Kubrick's movie. So he successfully made that sequel while doing a very solid adaptation of the novel Doctor Sleep. In fact, I will say, for the most part, the changes he made to the Doctor Sleep source novel are improvements. I, 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 you agree. Yeah. Oh, I, I'm nodding my head. I agree. It's yeah. pretty rare when a movie kind of, kind of outshines the novel and, and the changes made, uh, or raised, uh, it raises the bar against the source material. Yeah. We catch up with Danny Torrance. He's all grown up, but unfortunately he's inherited a lot of his dad's flaws. Most importantly, alcoholism and selfishness and anger. Um, he, you know, part of it is the trauma of his youth. He's lost his mom to cancer and, uh, just trying to pick up the pieces. So part of it, it's not just that he has the same flaws of his dad. He's wounded and haunted literally and psychologically by his childhood. So he's trying to find a new course in life and we reconnect to him and we sort of follow him through his recovery and he meets another child that shines, Abra. And she is incredibly powerful. Like if if he's like a level B, she's A plus plus plus. She is ridiculously powerful. In fact, yeah. she is OP, as my boys would say. She's almost overpowered. In the book, yeah. the True Knot, this group of people that hunt psychic children and feed off of their powers to sort of retain some version of immortality, they're kind of punks. Like, they have, like, no real weight to throw in the novel, as far as I'm concerned. And the movie makes the true knot both more interesting and more frightening than the book ever does. Uh, 
yeah. So, uh, yes, there's going to be these evil creatures that are hunting Abra, and we have a grown-up, Danny Torrance, trying to teach Abra how to use her shine and protect her from these evildoers. That's basically the premise of the m movie. It was two hours and 40 minutes in the theater. The director's cut that I just watched last night was actually three hours and two minutes. They're both really solid movies. Um, yeah, I guess that's as solid as an introduction as I can get. Let's get into it. What did you think of Dr. Sleep? Well, if anything, to me, this uh, sort of is the grand opening that Michael Flanagan is the real deal. Uh, I, I haven't seen all of his movies, but the ones I've seen, like Oculus and Hush, I'm a big supporter of. I haven't seen his uh, Haunting in Hill House. Oh, um, yeah, that's really good. And Absentia, yeah. Before I Wake, he's consistent. Even the Ouija sequel, which I had no interest in, <laughs> because yeah. he directed it, it actually has some really good stuff in it. He is very yeah. talented, no doubt. And he did this adaptation of Gerald's Game for Netflix, yeah. which was one of the most unfilmable, quote-unquote, of the Stephen King novels that I could think of. Like, I love the book, but I don't know how you make it into a movie. And Flanagan made it into a movie. So yeah, yeah, he is the real deal. You, uh, I've been convinced of that for a while now. <laughs> yeah, um, he has big brass balls taking on this white whale. Um, even watching the making of it, though, like you can see him and his crew were so giddy and so in love. Like there is a lot of love that went into the making of this movie. Even how they reconstructed the Overlook Hotel, the inside of it, and all the attention to detail. As a film fan, both of the novel, well, as, as a fan of both the novel and the film, I really appreciated that. And, and you're right, he, he, he plays a very dangerous game walking that line, but somehow he manages to honor not only the original source material, and not only the Kubrick film, but also the original novel. That's right. Uh, I, yeah, like I don't want to get into the third act quite yet. Um, and it's also a very somber piece. And I think one of the reasons why, you know, it, it didn't do as financially well is it's more of a supernatural drama than it is a horror film. Yes, there are scary things in the story. Yes, our villains have no problem killing kids. And we see that in a very brutal scene. But I sort of, you know, I sort of took this Doctor Sleep a lot like his novel Firestarter, where we have, you know, very enhanced human beings either on the run or battling with the shadowy organization. In Firestarter, it was the secret sect of the government. And here we've got a bunch of homicidal hippies. Yeah. Um, what works, though, is the drama, the pathos of the piece. And it's very, very believable. Um, coming from a family that uh, we have recovering addicts in it, um, some of the language and some of the scenes they use come straight from AA, and that hit home to me. It's um, played almost like too hard for me in the book in a lot of ways. Yeah. Stephen King is a recovering alcoholic. The program yeah. saved his life. He loves it, and he yeah. in like the the book is an unsubtle you know allegory about recovery. Yes. As much as he's recovering from his experiences as a young child and the trauma of losing his father and the experiences at the Overlook Hotel. It's about him yeah. recovering from alcohol, right? Yeah. 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 Uh in the same way, like for a long time after his accident, Stephen King was obsessed with people recovering from brutal accidents. Like he's definitely, you know, looking at himself in the mirror here. That's yeah. fine, but I think the movie strikes the balance well. 
but you're right in what you're saying tonally and this is true of the novel and the the movie necessarily it's not about isolation and intense psychological disintegration this is a power of good being set against a power of evil and the pieces on the board slowly coming together for an inevitable collision the characters are interesting and there is a psychic angle and we do get to see some ghosts from the overlook hotel but it doesn't feel like a horror movie it feels closer to like the dead zone where the dead zone from stephen king is like this sort of fantasy novel really with a lot of horror elements to it it's closer yeah. to the dead zone than, than the the shining in its sort of feel i happen to love the dead zone so that's not a problem for me yeah no no <laughs> Um, but um, maybe if people are expecting either. to have... I, like I said, I was prepared for that, having read the novel going into the film, that that's what we're getting. Um, the drama scene, Flanagan's really good at getting the best out of his actors. He really, really is. I think that's his strength. The fact that he's playing in the horror field you know, makes me applaud more. But I, I know now that when I sit down to a Mike Flanagan joint, I'm going to get a serious tonal horror movie from him where the actors and the writing is you know above good it's really really great there are two scenes that really hit home watching because I saw the director's cut version as well that really hit home there's a scene where uh, where uh, Dan's at AA and he's talking about his 8 year anniversary and, and, and he talks about his dad and it, it's this loving tribute like he actually sees the humanity in him and it's such a beautiful monologue and a beautiful scene that it, it kind of choked me up. And then going to the climax, and we are getting to spoiler territory, I'm sorry. I see that I didn't like the first time I saw it. It is spoilers when Danny's in the Overlook Hotel and he goes to the bar and it's, it's his dad bartending it. Uh, and they have that conversation. And his dad gets on this rant about, you know, all these mouths to feed. You know, like, you know, it just doesn't stop and all you want to do is a break. And he's going through this rage and you can see the look on Ewan McGregor's face, a.k.a. Danny, and it's pure heartbreak. Because that's his dad talking shit about him, his only son, to his face. And so you totally get why Danny is a broken human being, still a broken human being. It's these little attention to details by the actors that make this film so good to me. We haven't really talked about Rebecca Ferguson, who plays Rose the Hat, the leader of the True Knot. It's interesting to me. I don't ever sympathize with the True Knot. Like, I don't, like, uh, you can't cheer for these people who torture psychic children to death to feed on them. But it's interesting how much they love each other and how much every loss in the True Knot is mourned within it. So often with, like, villains, especially in the Stephen King universe, they are so evil that, like, yeah. that somebody they could have spent decades riding next to could die next to them. And not only would it not be traumatizing to them, it would they'd be indifferent to it or even find it funny, you know? And I, I like when things go start going really bad for the true knot, a bunch of them getting gunned down and, and Rose being psychic and attuned to her group realizes that she just lost some people that she has been close to for centuries in some case, literally. She yeah. screams and she cries out and she mourns them. And all of a sudden it went from, I, I have to make my 
my life to feed off this girl. It's a necessary thing to... I'm going to enjoy torturing this fucking girl. I'm going to make her suffer so fucking much for this because she has proven to be more trouble than she's worth. But at this point, (laughs) it's personal. And again, I have to say, it's done better in the movie than it is in the book. Yeah. Yep. I I agree cold 100%. Uh, It it gives it a lot more depth and weight to these characters' motivations. I agree. The scene where she's seen, even the, you know, the, mur- the murder of Crow Daddy, which is this really well put together scene where Danny has gone into Abra and we don't know it yet. Yeah. Or, you know, at least, or at least Crow Daddy doesn't know it yet. And he's tricked in the whole seatbelt thing. And, and, uh, and um, Rosa Hatt's response, like it's, you feel those howls, and in a lot of ways, you never do feel sorry for them because you know clearly Rose makes that choice. Even the monologue she gives to you know that big pusher, that you know, fifteen-year-old girl, um, she's accepted her evilness, but to survive, they have to go through this brutal and inhumane process, um, and, and it makes it a lot more believable. They're not relatable, but you still understand why they're doing what they're doing. Like, if you're tight enough with a group of people that you can plan and execute the torture and murder of a child together, you guys are, I mean, say what you will, you're, you're, you're bros, (laughs) I guess, you know, you're, you're evil bros, but (laughs) you're bros. And uh, it's sort of interesting that that's explored. Like you say, you feel the deaths in a way. It's not that, oh, you poor child torturer, but it's like the... That has impact for their group, and it, like I, I liked that. The yeah. controversial change, you talked about spoilers. For me, the big one that I'm still kind of wrestling with is the fate of Danny himself. Okay. In the book, the journey of Dr. Sleep for me is, is almost him learning the origin of his name. His dad always called him Doc when he was a kid, and he had associated it with Bugs Bunny or like, what's up, Doc, or something like that. But later when he gets this job at this uh, old age home or this uh, sort of end-of-life care facility, everybody there starts calling him Doc without knowing that nickname applied to him. And the Dr. Sleep moniker is all about Danny's using his shine to help people who are dying make the transition over as peacefully as possible to to sort of carry them over the other side. He found his purpose. He no longer needed to drink anymore. He no longer needed to, like, he'd found where he was supposed to be. He'd followed the path of his shine and between training Abra how to defend herself and finding this old age home, that's the answer to the question that was the source of the book. What happened to Danny Torrance? Danny Torrance ended up helping people at the end of their lives to transition into the afterlife. And yeah. he found out that that name that, that his dad gave him was in some way a weird premonition and it came full yeah. circle for me and I really liked that. Whereas in yeah. the movie, Danny's dead at the end of the movie. Yeah. And Danny's still going to hang out and talk to Abra in the same way Dick Halloran hung out for Danny and gave him advice. And sort of like the next generation of that's going through. But I find the ending of the book a little bit more satisfying for Danny. 
But the end of the movie is much more satisfying for fans of the Shining novel because the end of the movie, Doctor Sleep, is essentially the end of the novel, The Shining. Everything yeah. that we didn't get in, in, in Kubrick's adaptation with the boiler room and, the, and not, the furnace not being attended to and the explosion and destruction of the house, that all happens now in Doctor Sleep instead of in The Shining. And it is yeah. a very big climactic ending, and it's a much better, much more climactic ending, once again, than we get in the book. So yeah. I, when I say I'm torn about it, I am legitimately torn about it. But wall-to-wall, -wall, I like everything about the movie. Part of me wishes that it wasn't three hours long, but another part of me doesn't know what you cut out of it. Yeah, I, I gotta tell you, I kind of like the director's cut a little bit more than theatrical. I understand some of the scenes, like it was just sort of, you know, extra shots and, you know, extra little bits, especially at the beginning with the mother looking for her child who has since been killed. Um, most of it I is... Like most of it is just longer scenes. They just like they're, they're yeah. the same scenes, but more. Um, and like it, I wasn't distracted. I think we actually see Aubrey's father's murder in this director's cut too. Whereas in the theatrical cut, we just see his body. So there's just a little bit more. But I mean, yeah, at, at the director's cut, which I enjoyed watching, clocks in at three hours and two minutes. And it's just one of these things. Stephen King yes. wants to give you a big meal, so the movie's trying to reflect that. But that might have hurt its box office as well that said guess, i'm a big fan i like i i liked how flanagan almost the the structure of it is almost like a novel like he has it in chapters i did like that little bit yeah um i like the fact that we get more uh with albert's parents i think that's good we get a we get a line that sort of hints at one of the twists in the novel that's not wisely shown in the movie spoilers for the book um uh, Danny and Abra's mother are brother and sister. Yeah, that, uh, they don't bother with that here. Yeah, there's a line that, that strongly hints at there's more to, more to that relationship, but it's nothing. Nothing is done of it. Um, I really enjoyed. Uh, I like the ending. I think the ending is actually stronger in the movie than the book. To be perfectly honest, I, I, I knew why he was doing it. I do miss the fact that in the book there's this grumpy old patient that. You know, works away at uh, at Danny, but at the end, that relationship we see that more come to the, come to fruition. I do love the scenes where he's with those people that are dying, and how he's so good with them. Uh, we see that that evolution of the character. Um, one thing that did bother me about the book, and even though um, Danny doesn't get his comeuppances about the mother and the baby, when well, the whole journey them, is him seeking redemption like, does, for that. Does, isn't his whole journey? Yeah, he does. Like, he but wants to save Abra the way he didn't save that little baby. He's trying to, like, uh, clean himself up. And yeah, I, I think that was the journey of the novel for me, right? Yeah, I, I agree. But I, if anything, there's some compromises for that. I get that that's the event that triggers him to finally turn things around. But it's important to remember. And, like, Jenny's a victim. Like, I, I, I never I never forget that. Like Danny from a kid has experienced way more trauma than I've experienced personally. So I, I only see him as a victim. But there's that scene where I mean granted it, the mother is dead, but he lets that baby to die and steals the money. Um I guess there was a little bit of comeuppances for that with him dying in the film. Okay, well to be fairly 
he didn't leave that baby to die. He had he left that baby in that woman's care, but he found out later that that baby died. The baby didn't die because oh. he left. If that's what you're inferring, but he has the shine and he knows that like he just yeah. walked away from that terrible and it haunts him. It just haunts him. The image of that toddler walking towards that pile of cocaine haunts him, <laughs> right? Yeah. No, don't get me wrong. Like it, it does, it does haunt him. I, I, I get that. Uh, the fact that he does it, um, and I understand why he does it. Like that's that's just a mark on your soul that you never really get back. Yeah. Um, and so, in some ways, I think Flanagan gives Danny a little bit of comeuppances for that act. That uh, I mean, I don't think that's why he chose the ending, but the way that it happened, it allows that for him to happen. Um, I, I didn't mind the fact that he dies. I hate the last line, shine on, Albra, shine on. That's a pretty tacky line. Um, I think the but, movie wanted the true knot to be scarier, and they successfully did that by giving them weight. Uh, like, his best friend and sponsor in the AA program lives in the novel. He blows his head off in the in the movie here. Like, uh, Rose kills Danny in this movie and is really close to killing Abra. And in the book, she dies like a punk, along yeah. with the rest of them. The movie successfully at least attempts to make it more scary than than the novel did, um, yeah. and for that, like that, it improved on the novel. I have nothing but good things to say. The yeah. fact that it's constantly going to be compared with The Shining is always going to hurt it, and the yeah. fact that people who love the novel are going to feel like some of those changes they agree or disagree with is going to hurt it. But it deserves an audience, and I really hope yeah. that it finds one. This this is one of those ones that it bombed, but I like to think that 10, 15 years from now, people will still talk about Dr. Sleep and how underrated it was. Yeah, yeah, no, hardly agree. I think it's a great movie. Oh my god, oh my god, that was so much Stephen King, and no, we're not going to bother doing a rank. Although I never seem to tire of talking about Stephen King, um, you know, maybe there should be a time where I actually get more into some of his books or his stories, or I get into discussion of some of his unproduced works and question whether or not they should be or why they haven't been. He's such a generous imagination and a generous creator that, you know, never count him out never count him out. His dent in literature and in fantasy and horror history is immeasurable. But I don't think I'm saying anything that you don't know if you've listened to all of this. But if you have something to tell me, please send that feedback to rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Please check out Rank and Review at its website, rankandreview.ca, because I'm up in Canada. Please tell that other movie fan in your life about the podcast. And as ever, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I appreciate it.